Hello and welcome to StarkCast. I'm Joe Stark, and today StarkCast is on the road. <laughs> I made the trip down to Iowa City, and I'm hanging out with my friend, Dr. James Wetzel. What's up, dude? How's it going, man? It's going really well. I'm excited to uh, talk to you again. It's been, I think, close to a year since you've been on the show. Seriously? I think so. Holy cow. <laughs> Seems like you were just here a couple months ago. I know, right? <laughs> I know. Time goes by way too damn fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, right when I walked in, we immediately started talking about Free Solo. Yeah. Because that is the kind of the new climbing dock that's out right now. Yeah, and I just and, watched it last night. Yeah, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I think I just watched it for the first time maybe last weekend. And... um also seen the dawn wall so you gotta check that one out too yeah. since those are the two kind of big climbing docks that just came out around the same time and completely different feel for both of them and interesting because it's very much the same setting being that they're both taking place in yosemite valley and in being we both have a history in climbing too we have a bit of a unique perspective going in and seeing films like that and when you see the sort of shit that honald's doing in in free solo it is almost an entirely different level of horrifying for us yeah it was the tommy caldwell put it best when when he said you know people from the outside go wow what he's doing is crazy but people who know what he's doing go holy cow he's lost his mind you know (laughs) and like i've done those moves on a bouldering wall you know three feet off the ground and it still made me nervous and he's doing those moves two thousand feet in the air I mean, and you can't mess up those moves. Like, you know your positioning has to be perfect to catch those little nubs, otherwise you blow the hold. So for him to have that confidence and that, you know, like they said in the movie, it's like uh, you you have to win the gold medal because if you don't, <laughs> you die. There's no silver, there's yeah. no bronze. You have to perform. Well, it's so crazy because it's like free soloing isn't something that's new to mm-hmm. the climbing community by any means. Nope. Like as long as people have been climbing, like certainly free soloing was like the first thing that was ever done with it. Right. But to like do it at that level of difficulty, like making it truly cutting edge free solos. Oh, it's such a scary line. Yeah. That, that I've had so many times where I've just been gripped and scared out of my mind, like on a harness, on a, on a yeah, right. bolted sport route. Where right. It's like big beefy concrete anchors that are holding me in and I'm, 30 or 40 feet off the ground. Right. But, Survivable. Oh, man. But just that, that feeling. It, and it isn't like Freerider is like anywhere near his limit. Right. But it's just pushing the limit on what's been done without gear. Right. And that high off the ground. Right. And and the the amount of preparation. And I think that's what really sets him apart uh, is that he dedicated himself to knowing that entire route enough that it was just, he had the whole 3,000 feet by memory, uh-huh. like muscle memory even. So he must have just been putting hours into not only, like they showed a scene in there where he's got his notebook and he's writing down sort of mnemonics for the moves and what to do and just had that choreography in his mind. And probably nobody's been willing to even think about the amount of work needed to do that. To oh. actually go into and for a route that's thirty two hundred feet tall, right? Like there's there's routes, there's sport routes at Pictured Rocks that you can break down to twelve moves. Sure, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> it's like anybody can memorize that. That's right, <laughs> right. 
now do it 300 times. Yeah, you know? now take that route and add two zeros to the, <laughs> end of it, to the end of the height. Right. It's like, that's, it's just unfathomable to me. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, like all my climbing experience is pretty much in Iowa. Right. Like I've done some stuff in the Red River Gorge and um, ironically, the tallest wall I've ever been on is still in Iowa. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think yep. there's like a hundred and... 30 footer on the private campground Yep. that um, I think I only went to the top of that one once and mm-hmm. it was scary as yeah, fuck because right. like to the top of it, it's like number one, you're tired from climbing that much. And then that's where this one particular route gets tough. Yeah. They and always... So it's like, you just taking all this air mm-hmm. at the top and then you just hang it. I mean, it's so when, when you first got into climbing, what was your like kind of curve and getting used to that exposure of just hanging on a rope and being exhausted and having those thoughts of doubt go through your mind. Yeah, it was when I first started climbing, I was terrified. And it's actually really ironic because I got into climbing by watching Alex Honnold climb. No shit. Yeah, the Moonlight Buttress route, when he free soloed it, um, I was watching him and I was like, that's insane. And this is, if you haven't seen the video, it's like a, a crack climb and it's a crack pretty much from the bottom up to the top. It's like probably a thousand feet or something mm-hmm. climb. I can't remember exactly how tall. Maybe it's more than that. Maybe a little less. I don't remember. It's huge though. It's around a thousand feet. Yeah, think. something like that. And and he's just up there. And then he's and he's and the crack climb that he was doing. It looked so elegant, and his body positioning and how he was doing things was so smooth and methodical. I was like, that looks amazing. And then there was one of him just free soloing. I mean, it was more of a bouldering. Maybe like a fifty foot, and but for him that's bouldering, right? Uh-huh. Uh, a was fifty that, foot. Was that that one in um, Buttermilk's? Uh, I think it's in Ireland. Okay, something. Oh, okay, yeah, and it was on the probably the the um, uh, Big Ups movie progression. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, and there was just one scene of him where he was he was stemming out. He was on one foot, and then he just shifted his weight ever so slightly just to reach another hold. And I'll never forget that because that was the first sort of thing that I connected to climbing where it was all about body sort of movement and positioning and how it was like dancing almost. Oh, and absolutely. I, right? And I and that really, it got me really into the notion of climbing. And so I started going to the gym and it was terrifying because the one here in Iowa City, it's a 50-foot you know wall. It's not a big deal, but it's a it's a real feeling, you know, wall. They, it's like they, a textured one. You're, yeah. you're not just on a flat plywood surface or a flat textured surface. It actually is a contoured featured wall that looks like real rock, but it happens to have T-nut placements so you can put modular holds all around the wall. Yeah, so you can you can there's some natural features you can use and you can build them into routes with holds on them and yeah, and they've got yeah, T-nuts everywhere, so but when I first started climbing it was very much like, take, 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 I'm going to fall, take, 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 take more before I let go, you know, take, take, you know. Take me in the, the thing you yell to your belayer on. So your belayer is down on the ground, mm-hmm. like controlling the rope for you. Mm-hmm. And so when you're yelling, take, they're taking all the slack out of the system yep. so that you can have that comforting feeling of the rope pulling on your harness. And you're like, it is safe to let go of the yes. wall. yes. <laughs> And, and then it's like you're sitting in a weird tire swing almost, yeah, right? Yeah. And so I'll, I guess the stages I went through to get comfortable with climbing were when I would start to fall. First of all, I only climbed on routes where I didn't think I would fall. And as I'm climbing, I would, uh, you know, if I felt like I was going to fall, I'd yell take and my belayer would pull the rope up. Because you don't want the rope to be too tight while you're climbing because it can actually 
lift you off the route and you can lose some force that's holding you on because the more force you have, the better the friction is. So if your blayer's pulling on you the whole time, it can actually knock you off the wall. So Yeah, it'll mess with your balance for sure. Yeah, so usually there's a little bit of slack in the rope and yelling take means take that slack out and get the rope tight. And so I would abuse that term and and get the rope nice and tight. <laughs> so when I'd let go to relax, when you'd be all pumped out, like your forearms can't apply any more pressure. Your fingers uh, literally uncurl off the hold. There's yes. no, you just helplessly watch it happen. <laughs> yeah, you can't squeeze anymore. And uh, and then and I liked it where I could let go and not move. And I would just be at the height that I just was and nothing happened and everything was cool. Uh-huh. And then I got to the point where I was doing that and I'd sort of kick off the wall and kind of swing out and, you know, try to get my, you know, arms moving again. And just so I got a little more comfortable letting the rope and the harness do the thing. And then finally, I got to the point where I would I could actually, you know, just climb until I just fell, you know, <laughs> and then that was that was when you're really challenging yourself. And then you go to make a big move, you might miss it, and then, you know, you fall. And then there's six feet or so, ten feet of slack, and so you fall, the rope stretches, and you might go down a few uh, holds below where you started, and then you got to climb back up to it, which, again, I started to get used to because you wanted to do that, because you wanted to get back down, climb back into where you struggled. And so then it was more of a natural, like, okay, these ropes are going to catch me, it's going to be comfortable because they stretch as you fall. So it's doesn't it's not uncomfortable. You don't really fall that much, you know, and the higher you go, the less you fall. So it's, you know, you don't really have a problem at that early part because you're still got a lot of energy. But as you get higher up on the wall, that's when you start to lose your grip a little and your your <laughs> stamina. But then when you fall there, the, the slack, the stretch is a function of how much rope there is, basically. And the closer you are to the top, the less you stretch, so the less you fall and, and the less, yeah, hectic it is. But I'll never free solo. <laughs> like, and like, you know, uh, it's really interesting because, sorry to keep talking, but um, I, uh, uh, I really, really, really like the concept of free soloing. Because I'm a huge fan of top roping. And this is a little bit of the opposite of how climbers are supposed to be. Because you're supposed to like lead climbing. And you're supposed to like, um, you know, lead climbing is where as you climb, you place your safety gear. And you clip your rope in as you go. It's a little more dangerous. There's a little more risk involved. The falls are a little bit larger. But um, the reason I like top roping is because it's all about climbing. When you're leading it's it's very much about placing gear and so depending on what your you know interest is if you're if you really want to focus on climbing and the movements you know i can see how some people like placing the gear placing the rope and doing that as you climb but for me it's a distraction and i don't i haven't gotten over that i haven't gotten beyond that yet to thinking you know lead climbing is sweet it does it it interrupts the flow of climbing right but the, it seems but it's like, necessary for being outside. Someone's someone's got to lead it. <laughs> someone's got to lead the route. Someone's got to set it. Exactly. And you know, so that's where that. But I always I always appreciate after setting the rope, actually just climbing it, because when you're on top rope, you have the freedom to like, can I actually just climb this? Yeah. So I I totally understand the attraction of free soloing because yeah. it's free, you know. <laughs> it's like you're just climbing, you know? You're dancing with the wall and there's nothing in the way, you know? 
Yeah, anytime that I would go out to Pictured Rocks, I would feel, because that is a primarily a sport climbing park, there's bolted routes out there, yep. and it would almost feel like, okay, I'm really cheating this if I go up to the top, and I rappel in off a tree, and I utilize the existing gear on the wall, but I just set up a top rope that way. Right. Because there were, especially when I first started, you know, I wasn't willing to go out and and be the rope gun. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> that that yeah. seemed terrifying. It's terrifying. And, and yeah. especially if it's like, okay, if I'm just happen to be the person that owns all the gear, but I'm taking friends out and getting them into it, that's a lot to put on a, on a, you. a person on their first day also to be like, okay, here's how you belay. Right. Here's how you keep me from dying. Yeah, right, right. Uh, it's all on you. Okay, right. you got this? Let's do it. Right. And no, that's... Like, I remember taking a friend out that was my wife's cousin that he had started climbing on the same wall mm-hmm. at the, the gym in Iowa City as you. Yep. And there they have a ATC mm-hmm. only rule. Yes. Lately. Which is basically, it's an ATC's, um, it's, it's like a tube that you would bend the rope in half and then kind of stick that loop of the rope through this tube and then clip a carabiner to that loop of rope. And so it introduces enough friction into the system to where if you hold on to the break end of the rope and you just apply pressure on it, it slows down the rope, arrests the climber's fall, and then basically the blayer, if they're not paying attention to that break end of the rope, they can drop you. Yep. Whereas a lot of times going out sport climbing, we'd use something called an auto-locking device that it's, it has a cam system that when you pull on it, it's kind of like a seatbelt in a car where you yep. pull on it really hard and suddenly, it's going to lock itself up. But if you go slow, it'll allow stuff going through. But there's a lever involved. And if someone panics and holds back on the lever, climber decks and hits the ground. That's right. Well, I explained to him how this this auto-locking device, a Petzl Grigri, works. And he's like, oh, I've never used one of these before. I'm like, well, if you know how to use an ATC, you're good. Yeah, it's the same basic. yeah. Yeah, you can do this. I believe in you. And so I did a bunch of stuff where I climbed up to the first or second bolt and then just really slowly sat back down onto the rope and had him lower me to the ground until he Show felt good to, on it. Yeah. Well, I get on this route called jugular, which mm-hmm, is like mm-hmm. a pretty easy route. Yeah. And being it's an easy route and it's within a minute walk of the parking lot, it sees a lot of traffic. And so polished as we say. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The rock gets polished. It, it loses the friction. It gets slippery. Like and the when steps it, at a courthouse. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Like your mom's fine china. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I did the the guidebook for pictured rocks, I considered putting in a, a china rating. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. <laughs> Where there'd be like so many dishes. How yeah? How polished is this route? And and like you said, it gets so smooth you you lose all the friction. It's literally as slippery as ice. You know? Yeah. Like literally, you do not want to climb on that. <laughs> and if it gets wet, and like oh, a lot yeah. of the. Like limestone, you know, it's so porous mm-hmm. that water runs through it. And so mm-hmm. there's a big hill up behind this this wall. Mm-hmm. And all the rainwater that soaks into that hill, it's eventually going it to find its out. way. It's almost like plumbing inside the wall. And it'll find its way out. And you might have this big, awesome hold that you can get the majority of your hand in. But then it's like you're putting your hand into a pudding cup yep. if the conditions are right. And it's just no good. And so I'm up there hanging on this route trying to set up the top anchors and just clip it in. And I'm like pumped out of my mind, very aware of the fact that I have a new Belair. And I'm like, just get a quick draw onto the bolt and then hold onto it like you're choking a cobra. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And so it didn't work out. And because I'm like basically up there in this bad body positioning, like using my arms like a T-Rex, trying to clip the rope in and I take a monster fall. 
and John catches me, but man, I bet I dropped 20 feet. Oh boy. And, and I'm a big guy. So right. I yanked him way up off the ground. Yep. And I remember when I got to the, the, and then I climbed back up, set the route. And when I came back down, he was like, dude, if I had been using an ATC, you'd have been on the ground. He's like, there's no way I'd have been on a hold that climb. And so then ever since then, I'm like, fuck ATC. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's like a super experienced belayer and also like somebody that's maybe close to my own weight which in climbing is hard for me to find right okay yeah i mean that's a that's a big problem and okay just to give people some background on the atc versus the auto locking why the rule at the gym um it's been that way for a few years now and it was because someone was using a cinch which is another type of Mm -hmm. uh belay device that's auto locking now, as I understand it, that device is basically the opposite of a grigri in terms of how you how you release the rope. Okay. So with the grigri, you pull up. With the cinch, you pull down. Ah. Uh, and so, and someone was was climbing and it was lead climbing at the gym. So they weren't doing a top rope. They were actually setting their their rope and gear as you climb just to practice. And the guy that was uh, belaying the climber, and the client, the guy climbing worked at the gym, and he was a, a seasoned, you know, climber. He knew what he was doing, and the guy belaying him was a seasoned climber who knew what he was doing. But this is the first time that he was using this cinch device, and the guy was about forty feet up in the uh, towards the top of the wall, almost to the top. He fell, and the guy uh, belaying pulled down to catch him, and that ended up actually releasing the rope, and he fell all the way down to the ground and he ended up having to go, it was six or seven months or so rehabilitation is back all messed up. He was, you know, bedridden for a while. And yeah. And so then of course, all these, uh, folks that have no idea how climbing works descended upon the gym to analyze how this possibly could have happened. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so they added a bunch of rules and they blah, blah, blah. And one of the rules they added was no auto locking blade devices. Which, if you like, you just said. I mean, that you want that when you're climbing. It's way safer than an ATC. Just way safer <laughs> to have a grigri because if you if you, you know, if someone if you're not paying attention, your hand slips or you, you just pass out because you're locking your knees or something, you know, and you're not, you know, you just faint for a second. Or then, in an outdoor setting, if a if you knock a rock off and it hits your belayer in the head and knocks him unconscious. Exactly. Yeah. And so the the grigri will will catch you regardless. You know, if that rope goes fast enough through that thing, it's going to stop you. You know. Whereas the ATC, if someone's not applying pressure on that down the break end of the rope, then that rope will slide right through their device, right out of the hand, and and you'll fall all the way down. So, you know. That's so. Anyway, all the climbers were upset because they put in all these rules, which didn't make a lot of sense as sort of a reaction to the incident. Whereas the real issue was, you know, someone using a device that they weren't trained on or had ever used before. And if you know, if we're going to you know make rules at at a climbing gym to make things safer, you know, that's what you have to worry about is people coming in to try to do that without understanding how you know and the guy that runs the gym there was nothing he could do either because it was just like the the insurance company and the blah 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 is like well if you want a gym and you want us to insure you these are the rules you're gonna have to put in you know so they and they the biggest irritation for me was that the uh you can't just boulder anymore you have to like check in and go and be certified before you could just show up 
the the big wall might have been closed and no one was working there, but you could just boulder. But now they always have to be staffed to go bouldering even. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a real drag because you can't just go boulder on your lunch break or something and get some you know reps in or whatever. Yeah. You well, get... I remember I met you there that one time. That was the only time I've ever climbed in that gym. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting wall. Yeah, it's interesting. I've always just climbed on plywood in garages <laughs> with no regulation. Right, right. And it's fine. <laughs> yeah, other than don't be a dick or you're going to get tossed out. <laughs> right. I mean, as long as someone's watching... You know, it should be fine. I mean, the biggest issue with that gym is nobody watched anyone do anything. Like the the workers there, the, they're student workers, and they would usually just be on their phones, sitting around. Yeah, bored and, out of their mind. Yeah, and 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 that got, that only got worse actually after the incident because they um, ended up requiring like six people to be present at all times. So they reduced. Holy shit. Yeah, they reduced all the hours that it was open. So then, you know, and then it had to be staffed. And so then the budget was, okay, well, all these people. So then they end up, the workers would just be in this circle talking to each other. People would be climbing, you know, and, you know, I would be there. Or some of our friends would be there. And we'd have to be like, hey, don't do that. You know, like. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to do their job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. At, at times. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, well, like. And I'd heard uh, stories from other people where the workers were way too intense uh-huh. on yep. enforcing the rules to the point where they're like, the, our one mutual friend was like, Get the fuck away from me. Right. No, it <laughs> I'll was... be talking to your boss. I've known him right. since before you were old enough to drive. You know? <laughs> yeah, no, they were. And, and it's again, it's because the rules were such that you had to belay a certain way. Yeah. And that's what they were. And it was like, well, technically, you can really, there's several ways to be safe. Mm-hmm. Well, no, in this gym, because they're all trained to look for one thing. You know, and and the problem is they don't always do that. And so, you know, like our mutual friend would climb there a lot and nobody ever gave anyone any grief. And then one person would see it and then suddenly it was an issue. And so, yeah, (laughs) it's just like, and it's hard to relearn how to do something that you've been doing for 30 years or whatever. Oh, exactly. You know? And this guy had been climbing since I think he started in the 80s. Right, and yeah. So it was like, holy shit. Right. You know, this guy's got so many pitches of, of rock, ice, bouldering, right. <laughs> adventure climbing. Right. And now he's got a 20-year-old <laughs> yelling at him saying he's not doing it right. Yeah, exactly. It like, puts me in mind of that meme online where it's like the, the person dressed all nice with a hard hat and safety glasses. And it's like, I've never done your job, but my book says you're doing it wrong. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, that's just so uh-huh. hard for some people to take. Right. Especially and, you catch him on the bad mood, or or oh, yeah. or, or if yeah. you just the. Whenever you have that conversation with somebody, it's so difficult. It's hard. Yeah, it's super hard. Yeah, because I would when I first started climbing, just me being gregarious the way I am, I would just go up to just random strangers at Pictured Rocks because if I was there just hiking, right, I'd just walk up and be like, "Hey, where are you guys from? Why, right. What are you doing? Right. Are you having you know Have you ever been here before? What sort of stuff do you usually climb? You know, just all those questions. And then I'd be there long enough to where I'd start looking at their setup. And uh, there were times where it was like, "Oh, you didn't. That's wrong. Like right. that. That's not. That's not a safe anchor setup. Like right. you. You never read that book, did you? Yeah. <laughs> you you want to slice your rope right open? Is that what you want? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I remember the one guy like, and you I tried to pop him out of those anchors. Do it as possible. Where I was right. like, you know, hey, I noticed your anchors aren't equalized up there. All the weights just on that one side. Like I, not to sound like the safety police, but yeah, this right. is not good. Right. And he goes, I've been climbing for thirty years, and I was like, oh. Fuck, he yeah. took it that way. Right, right. I'm like, all right, well, let's lean into it. Yeah, like, right. I'm surprised you're still alive. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then walk away being like, well, didn't make friends with that guy. Yeah. 
and you know something like that it's again it's it's you want a hundred percent you know confidence and those rules are in place because it was determined that that led to the accident right and yeah. so so that r- rule yeah you could drive down the highway without a seatbelt 99% of the time and you may go your whole life with never being in an accident and you may never but it's you know that's not why you take precautions like making sure you I mean why do you have two okay and then physics why would you put weight on one if you have two you know you're trying to right you, you know reduce the odds that you know you're going to blow an anchor and what happens if you blow an anchor well something's going to fall and you know what if that thing that falls hits you know so it's just like yeah. the the you know it's like yeah you've made it this far climbing 30 years without having an incident because you've been lucky you know or you've been in a situation where that just didn't happen yet you know but we've all known people that have had weird things happen and if you aren't taking the precautions and and learning from people's misfortunes in the past then you're just you're just rolling the dice basically and and what's so hard about equalizing you know making sure your anchors are the same height or making sure they're they're facing the right direction or you know it's like it's not hard <laughs> no it's yeah. not hard at all no so <laughs> and it is really simple physics where it's yeah. like okay if one of your anchors is super tight and the other is hanging there like a banana mm-hmm. if the one fails it's going to shock load the other yep and then you're you're doubling the chances of essentially of of making the other anchor making your backup fail. Yep. And so in and then in that case too, I felt like I needed to say something because he had two newbies out with him mm-hmm. and they were just and you needed roping. to set the example, be like, hey, make sure you guys know yeah. or are aware of. You know. Yeah. In the way that I came up with the guy who mentored me, it was like he was always one to say something. Yeah. Sure. And so that was also an it example. Is safety. Of, who yeah. cares if you upset him if you save his life, you know? <laughs> you know, that's how I look at it. Yeah. I'm supposed to have Troy on the podcast at some point. Oh, God. We've been talking about it forever. I bet he'd have some good stories. Oh, man. Well, he's moved to Kentucky now. Oh, really? And he's developing an entire crag there called uh, Cathedral Domain. In uh, in the Red River Gorge. Nice. And he's bolted, like, I think 300 routes there. Holy cow. That's awesome. <laughs> and that's Troy. That's yeah, what that's, he does. that's what he does. But um, I think the best Troy story is we were we got out to the crag, we met at Pictured Rocks, and it was a really cold December morning. And I'm standing in the parking lot, and I'm looking down the trail, and I'm seeing what looks like, you know, 18 to 24-inch flames mm-hmm. leaping up in the air. And I'm like, what the hell? And I look a little closer, and there's guys in puffy jackets standing around, and I'm like, there's people with a fucking so fire. fire out there, yeah. And it's like, there's no camping signs everywhere. Right. And 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 basically, as a a user group, like the DNR tends to like us climbers because we do things like the trail day, and right. and they they know that by what we do as a group and a community that that you know we care about the park just the same as they do. We're just coming at it from from different angles, and it's the only reason that we're allowed to climb there, right? Basically, is right. because of this like kind of partnership that the Iowa Climbers Coalition has with the DNR, and that. You know, we we worked with them years ago to to set rules for the park, right. and they understand that yeah, there are bad actors in the bunch, and not to judge the whole community on it. Right. But when something like that happens, where it's like, guys, they don't even allow camping here, and you've built a campfire right on the side of the trail. You guys slept here last night, and so like, <laughs> we're standing there, and the Troy comes walking up. I'm like, there's people down there camping with a campfire, and he just takes off and goes down the trail. He's like, 
Where are you guys from? Uh, you know there's no camping allowed here? Oh, we didn't know that. And he's like, yeah, get this shit cleaned up right now. <laughs> he's like, this is fucking ghetto. And then just walks away. <laughs> and it's like four of us following. We're like, and I'm like trying so hard not to laugh. I'm like, did he just say this, this is, is fucking ghetto? <laughs> oh, geez. I mean, but you know, he's a guy who speaks his mind. He could and get so, away with that. It, if it you was, know Troy. It was great. Troy can get away with that. <laughs> That's hilarious. But yeah, no, that'll be fun getting him on the show at mm-hmm, some point. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, man, Pictured Rocks in Iowa, that is... It's a little bit of a gem. You know there's people that go out there and free solo stuff. I, I'm not surprised. I, I wouldn't do it. Not in a million fucking years. No, so many spiders. Well, <laughs> okay, polished stone. That's the thing. Muddy pockets. That's the thing. Um, You get your hand covered in mud, you can't really get it off. And if you're pumped out... You know, and you're trying to wipe your pants, you know, uh-huh. like, uh, uh, what's the um, third, three strikes and no balls? Yeah. There's big pockets towards the top there, and you can get your hands in there, and it's great on a dry day. But on a wet day, you put your hand in there, you think like, oh, I've climbed this one, I can get a nice grip here. You put your hand in there, and it's just wet mud, and it's like the silty, yeah, fine... Yeah, silt that has been filtered down through rock, Yeah, it's like the dust of ages. Yes! <laughs> it's been there since the dawn of the solar system, and you know, you wipe your hand off, and it's dry, but you have this powder that's like smooth, and it's not like chalk, you know? So then you're just like... It's very slimy. Yeah, and then and you're right near the top you're pumped out and you know three strikes no balls is totally a wall that you could free solo because otherwise you know it's huge nice huge holes that are obvious to your eyes and you can you know really grab onto them and all that but it's so wet all the time in that top third that you know and you the pockets that are wet are different and you don't know yeah and that's a wall that you really could top out Mm -hmm, totally you know because a lot of walls will just it's like okay this is where the stone stops yeah and where the dirt going up on the the bluff starts right and so realistically to try and solo something like that it's like you're going to be on something that's near vertical but it's no longer rock it's now dirt yep and it's like no that's that's fucking sketchy yep you grab a root and the tree falls (laughs) down on your head (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But uh, no, I talked to this one guy who said he'd free soloed Tarzan, which is like a... The 5.7? Yeah, it's a a super easy beginner route. Mm -hmm. And as such, it is potentially one of the most... Oh, yeah, you got a picture of it in your living room. (laughs) Yep. And it it leans back a little. So as you climb, you're actually kind of leaning into it. Oh, yeah. It's really only got like maybe 10 feet of like actual vertical climbing. Mm -hmm. But so much of it is so insanely polished. Oh, my. It's it's so smooth. So smooth. And also the nature... Okay, so when you watch Free Solo and you're seeing Alex Honnold there, he's on granite. Yes. Which is like, you know, I mean, that's like a metamorphic rock. It's like sandpaper. And it's it's super, super hard. Right. Whereas you're talking limestone, that's a sedimentary rock formed under ancient oceans. It's basically the shit and bones of ancient sea life. Yes. And it's a soft stone. It it breaks easy. Yes, Chaucy. Well, yeah. (laughs) Chaucy, rotten rock, where it's like, I don't, the amount of times where I've climbed up on something and I've put my hand on a big hold and then you knock on it like it's a door. Yeah. And if it has a hollow sound to it, it's like, wow, this is not super attached to the wall. Right. And man, the the amount of times that I've fallen because of a broken hold, I I can't even quantify. It's been so many times. It's just something that happens. Yeah. And to kind of drive the point home, we'd climb out there all the time for a while. 
and we we would climb basically the same routes every time. There's a, a real a handful of really good routes, right? Like ten or so, and we would do the circuit sort of and kind of mix it up a little. But there wasn't a time that I didn't have a rock at some point from some wall, right? You know, and it was like you'd think by now all of that stuff would be off, but it's constantly. You know, new little rocks are coming off, new little parts are chipping away, new little things are, you know. So you never really get a choss-free environment on a limestone. Oh, erosion is going to be a constant. And the yes. more people that are on it, it's it's just going to happen. And especially in the spring after the winter, you know. The freeze-thaw cycle, yes, yeah. Yes, yeah. So, you know, you just, I that's, yeah, you free-soloing in... Like even Honold, I don't know. You, he might even be like, well, "I'm not going to free solo on limestone," you know. Like He's, he he did the uh, the one that's down in El Portrero. Oh, so he has done limestone. Yes, okay. it's like uh, so. El was it Sendero Luminoso or something like that. I think it's Spanish for the luminous path or something like Is that. Is it the one that's like in view of a city? And you can see it from the city. Yeah, it's like these okay, big limestone fins okay, down okay, in Mexico. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's like 1,200 feet or something like yeah, that. Yeah, so he did do that. Okay, I think so it's 12D. Take, I take it back. I mean, so it's, you know, insanely hard. Diff- like, by Iowa standards, for, for there what... There is no 12D in Iowa. Oh, there, there's uh, uh, there's at least one of them that's on public land. In... It's it's out at Hoop Bluff. Okay, and so... And it's called yeah, Back sure. in the Groove. Okay. And it's a 12D that... Uh, so what, 25 Wisconsin feet or strongman climber Chris Freyer. I remember watching him work that project, and I think he was like, "Oh, it's only it's only nine moves." He goes, "But every single move is this." He was like, "Every single move is a 12D move." Right. He's like, "Everything so is 12D. hard." Yeah. And like, I remember belaying Troy on it and taking pictures of him working that project and just being like in awe of how small these holds were and like how incredibly steep the wall was. And I mean, that's. I mean, it's just a really, really hard grade, and right. he's doing it on limestone, and it's like twelve hundred feet, and yeah, that, that's something to look up on YouTube because I know the the videos there, and it's like maybe less than ten minutes or so. I, I think I, I remember seeing them talk about it. I don't know if I ever saw the, him actually climb that one. I should definitely look that up. But and I will mention um, the twelve D. Like usually, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, a route is graded by its hardest move. So you know, you could have twelve hundred feet of nine, 10, whatever, and then a 10-foot section of a 12D problem, and then it becomes a 12D route. So, And that's where grading gets really subjective and really tricky. Right. Because you kind of have to use other routes in that area as a benchmark, and it's what what historically that community has done. Right. But to your point about this, the 12D being only nine moves, but nine 12D moves, because there's a couple of 12s at Pictured Rock's, and it's might maybe because of one hard oh, move for, for sure. You know, soul ignition on the wild yeah, Iowa exactly. wall. It's a one move wonder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, hey, if you can do this, like I remember giant Pat, jump. Pat would always joke and say, "Oh, that's everybody's first twelve A." Yeah, and then they go, "I got oh, it." Well, are you shitting me? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Did you do it on? I'm lead? a twelve A climber. No, I didn't do it on. Lead. <laughs> oh, then it doesn't. Yeah, count. no, no, right. Exactly. Well, and that's always is that macho is is that a bit of machismo that's in climbing community? That you have to lead if stuff. If you don't do it on lead, it doesn't count. Yeah, it's bullcrap. I I think it's total bullcrap. I it's 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 always been weird to me, and it's something that I've always struggled with because I yeah. always I immediately loved climbing when I got into it, mm-hmm. and then the longer I did it, the less willing I was to go out and suffer. Yeah, no, it, that's exactly my point. Is and so 
you know, if you if you say, well, it's not real because you didn't lead climb it, then you have to eventually get to the point. Well, it's not real because you didn't free solo it. You know, because at some point it's like, well, why isn't it real? Oh, it's because I wasn't adding unnecessary risk to the climb. That's the the level of oh, it's not a real. You didn't really climb it because you didn't set the route or what. It's harder. It's more difficult, but it's not because climbing is more difficult. It's because you're having to juggle all this stuff, and it makes it harder, you know. And it's not not it's not more difficult of a climb. It's more difficult to manage. You yeah, know? you weren't doing vertical construction, so it doesn't count. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, so yeah, lead climbing is harder. It's more dangerous. So I understand where that comes from. You know, like uh, Todd, if you're listening, um, <laughs> Todd was the rope gun, and uh, Todd would go out and he would set every route that we would climb, and uh, it, and the reason for that was he had ten years more experience, or maybe not ten years, but many more years experience than I did. I would I just started climbing, and uh, I would ju- I hadn't even lead you know I had never done lead climbing until I got outside, and I you know set um, ice. Ice, uh, what is that one? In, uh, it's next to Tarzan. Or not Tarzan, no, next, um, the, uh, Tasmanian Devil. It's like Ice, um, it's a 5-9, I think. Oh, Sculio. Not Sculio. Uh, Skeletor? Not Skeletor. <laughs> not Skeletor, no. So you've got, um, Skeletor and He-Man and Tasmanian Devil and then Ice, it's on Ice Wall, I think is the name of the wall. Yeah, that's Sculio, that one that's all is by that itself. Is that called Sculio? It's like right across the gully from Flash. Yeah. That's Sculio. I keep thinking Ice Wall, and I keep thinking the name is Ice. <laughs> Meanwhile, other people listening to this podcast are like, what the fuck yeah. are you talking yeah, about? Sculio, He-Man, Skeletor, Tarzan. <laughs> Pictured yeah. Rocks has some really, like, when you get into the stuff that, like, the Iowa City climbers were bolting towards the end mm-hmm. of the 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 well, call them the illegal routes that went in. Because right. now now there's a legal process that's kosher with the DNR to put them in. Right. But there was a, a crew from Iowa City that did a lot of Windy Point. And that's where you get the really, like the silliest route names at Pictured Rocks are out at Windy Point. Donkey Punch. Yeah. <laughs> that's Border Town Donkey Show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Border lesbian Town. Lesbian Don- Knife Fight. Yeah, Lesbian Knife Fight. And then uh, Caught in the Crotch Fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, Fat <laughs> Chicks on Pogo Sticks. <laughs> yep. The goo- just the goofiest freaking names out there. Mm-hmm. But Border Town Donkey Show is one of those ones that when those guys bolted it, they just left all the, yeah. the dead rock on that route. Yep, super and, dangerous. And oh man, all the stuff online was talking about, you know, oh, we pulled off a softball sized rock on it last week that almost hit my belayer in the head. You know, hey, stay away from this route or right. just beware. And so that is, as part of cleaning up the the routes and making them safer because that was what the dnr wanted right of course and they were like basically talking with us because there's the iowa climbers coalition but then part of the deal with pictured rocks is they made a climbing management committee that was made up of some people that were in the climbers coalition and some people that weren't in it but basically just knowledgeable people that cared about the park and were willing to go out and volunteer time to you know spearhead efforts for building trails coordinate things with the dnr and when I first got into climbing, like with a lot of things I do, I, ju- I jump in and I'm like, I need to know everything about this. This is so cool. And like, I don't dip my toes into anything. And so in going out and climbing on private property that, you know, my friend Troy had put up routes on and stuff just in 
cooperation with different farmers and landowners and stuff like that. Right. Since it was on private property and we didn't have to worry about, you know, dickhead thieves and stuff like that, he would basically equip the anchors on tops of routes with just carabiners. Yeah. And so you could just, when you were done, you'd just clip your rope into them and lower off. Well, if you try and do that picture rocks, people will be like, hey, free carabiners. Or right, it's let's like, take them. Right. It's like, why would you steal something that's of benefit to the community right. that you could go out and spend $8 on and have your two carabiners that are brand new? Right. They're not things that have been out in the weather and had unknown people. You know, there's just... Yeah, you would never actually... I, yeah. yeah, like nobody finds like, like leave left behind gear and it's like i'm gonna trust my life with this right. it's like no that's what you use to bail off a route at right. some point right <laughs> you know? no and and to your point the reason why that's nice is because when you get up there and if you're done and you need to get your rope back and you need to get down and get your gear off the thing how do you do that and there's a process called cleaning and it takes you know time and so and it's freaky at first yeah, it's also. super freaky it's dangerous it yeah. is dangerous you can totally make a mistake basically there's two bolts at the tops of routes and you have to take extra gear with you to where you directly anchor yourself from your harness to those bolts on the wall. And then you untie from your rope and you thread your rope through these chains at the top and then tie back into your harness. And then trust that you did everything correctly because you're about to put your weight on this system. Yep. And that's where accidents have happened in climbing oh. in the past where people are like, all right, on you to their belayer. Yep. And then they unhook from the wall and lean back and then end up decking. And they blow something. Totally. And, and so that was something that we wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And, and so me being young and inexperienced at climbing, I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go to the hardware store and get these stainless steel three eighths snap links and put in. So I, I put it on mountain project, you know, Hey, I'm going to start doing this. Please right. don't be an asshole and steal them. Well, and then that's how I found out that there was a management committee in picture rocks. Cause I got several emails saying, please don't do this, including one from Troy, which the, up to that point, I was like, you're on the management committee. Why like, didn't you I say yeah. out with you so much training and everything? Why have you never told me this? Right. Like, Think don't it you remember come up. me showing you this at the gym? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to do this. And... Like, let, let's wait and tell him about it online when he's made an ass of himself. <laughs> right. And to this day, those comments are still on Mountain Project because it's like <laughs> people can learn from my idiot moment sure. that you can't use hardware store snap links right. on there. Right. And, um, but yeah, so then we started doing oh, stuff just like that. Really quickly, and yeah. the reason you do that is because to get back down, then you repel, and what that does is it prevents the rope from sliding through the gear, because that's when you can you wear out your rope the more you're sliding around and pulling that rope around. So, that, so if you get to the top, you don't want to just be lowered back down to the ground, because you're waiting the rope the entire time that you're being lowered, yeah. and it just wears out the rope. And if these things have been out in the weather, they get, can get sharp over time of people lowering it continuously. Mm-hmm. So you want them there to catch you if you fall, but you really don't want to be sliding your rope along the anchors at the top. Um, so so it, that's why you clean the route, and that's why you use the, the gear that's up there so that you can just, with rappelling, you just you go down the rope without moving the rope. Is a way to yeah. put it. So. Yeah, in, in that picture, it's not that big of a deal to no. be lowered. Right. But you don't want every climber in your party to lower off the gear. Basically, exactly. if, if the per, the person who cleans the route can then lower off. Right. Well, and also, the, a lot of the routes out there have got quick links at the top, so the, right. the, the wearable parts are completely modular. Right. And then it only costs the Climbers Coalition like six bucks to change right. out with new 3.8 quick links. Right. Um, but, but that's why, right? Yeah. Yeah, but... Um, but, okay, so yeah, getting back to the the management committee. So mm-hmm. g- doing all this stuff in conjunction with them, 
they have these standards that they want out there. And one of the things they don't want to see are people getting involved in accidents. Right, of course. And, you know, just throughout different, you know, stories and stuff that they would hear, because they'd come out during trail days and talk with different people. And, and some people would be brutally honest with them and talk about stuff in the park. And, and one of the reasons that the management committee was formed, because at one time there was so many loose hangers in the park that just need to be either tightened down or have the bolts replaced. Right. Well, the DNR had put a moratorium on bolts because they were like, whoa, 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 you're going out and just putting up stuff wherever you want and you're destroying wildlife, you know, plant life and stuff at the base of these climbs because right. people are hanging out and lounging and basically turning it into a mud hole. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> at, the, at the bottom of the wall. As people do. Well, yeah, and so it was like they, the there was almost a catch-22 on the climbers community is that they didn't have the the rules in place to allow people to legally do it and certainly they didn't want people to go out and illegally do it right. so nothing happened for a long time right and then once this management committee was formed they were like okay we want every bolt checked and so really they expect every bolt to be tightness checked every year on every route and so far that's been a, a huge challenge because for one person to go out and either climb every route and check every bolt right and you know so i mean that one's been tough but as far as like building the better trails and everything it's Everything's been on a pretty good path there. And, and But part of that, one of the most controversial thing they asked us to do was to take the routes where there was things where there was lots of comments online about, you know, oh, lots of rock falling off this. Oh, somebody got hit in the head. Somebody almost got hit in the head. They didn't like seeing that stuff. And they're right. like, hey, is there a way to mitigate that? And we're like, okay, the way that most people who develop limestone do it is that when they initially put those bolts in, they clean, quote unquote, the rock meaning everything that's loose or suspect gets kind of pried off the wall. Right. Either with a screwdriver or, in some cases, a crowbar. A crowbar, yeah. <laughs> you know, it just it happens. Because the worst thing that could happen, and I've developed and bolted a lot of routes over the years, and the mm -hmm. worst thing I could imagine was hearing a story about somebody pulling off a big block or something like that and somebody getting injured. Sure. Where it's like, wow, if I would have just been not so obsessed with, okay, this line's done, on to the next one, just putting a little bit extra time in and cleaning it safely... It's going to be good to go. Well, a lot of the the older route developers and stuff at Picture Rocks did not do that sort of shit. Not and, at all. And I, I think the one that got us in the most hot water with the climbing community was taking a big chunk of the flake off of Superfly, mm -hmm. which is this this really iconic wall in Picture Rocks because the trail goes... I mean, there's a handicap-accessible trail in the park, and it goes right past this really big wall. And there, a flake in climbing is basically... Imagine like a big giant potato chip, but it's made out of limestone and it can be the size of like a Volkswagen bug or it can be the size of like a trash can lid. Mm -hmm. Well, either way, bad shit's going to happen if either of those fall. And this one was more the size of a compacted VW bug. Right. And it's like a uh, um, callus on your foot. Yeah. Right? That it's there, but it's not super connected. <laughs> you can grab I've onto it. I've never heard one compared that way. It's amazing. I'm just thinking about it. You could just, you could peel it right off if you put the right pressure to it, is yeah. my point, right? And so, yeah, so, flakes are nice to grab onto, but they're not well attached usually. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the Johnson County, uh, so it, no, it wasn't Johnson County. He's in Johnson County now. It was the Jones County Conservation Director at the time was talking to me after a trail day. And we were standing under Superfly, and he's like, is this thing dangerous? And I'm like, potentially. <laughs> is climbing dangerous? <laughs> yes. And he's like, I've heard lots of comments about this thing over the years. And like, you know, most most recently from, you know, 
people that were in the ICC had actually even mentioned it. And so I was like, well, to tell you the truth, dude, I was like, if this route were to be developed these days by, you know, kind of the current crew that's developing routes in Iowa, I was like, that wouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. And, and if there's any bit of it that is solid, that's all that would be left on the wall. But you would be looking at, you know, the, the wall is going to be a different color behind it because it's, it's new. It, there hasn't, it hasn't been bombarded by UV light for years. Right. And yeah, it's very new. It's going to be very tan looking. It's right. not, it's not going to have is, any patina or anything. Is on this it. on uh, Gumby wall? Um, no, this is on the, the AWOL, Superfly. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, and so, um, yeah, we went out there in the dead of winter when there'd be no hikers or anything like that. And I had video on my phone because we thought it was all going to come off. Right. But really, it was just the leading edges of it came off. But the first part that came off was about the size of a dorm fridge. Oh, my gosh. And it hit the ground and exploded <laughs> like a shrapnel, like a, like a fragment bomb. Right. Like, it was... And what was funny, too, is that in different email conversations with people in the DNR and stuff, when they were like, you know, oh, why don't you use pieces of that big flake to go and, you know, do this or that? And we're like, it exploded into softball-sized pieces. Like, if that would have happened on a busy day in the comic gallery, like, so many people could have potentially gotten hurt. Like, people walking just on that trail could have got hit with stuff. And so it's like, yeah, this is why this sort of shit needs to happen. Right. Man, people in the... I got some fucking angry emails about that. Like, oh, you're... Taking a breaker, I, taking a breaker bar to parts of the wall. What's gonna, what's this gonna do to access? And it's like, yeah, the, the park owners they asked us to do that. Yeah. So slow your roll. Yeah, <laughs> I I wanted to fall on that. I wanted that flake to break <laughs> under me. There were comments online where people were like, yeah, I was standing on top of the flake resting today, and the thing was wiggling underneath me. And it's like, holy shit, why are you doing that? Well, as Lady Gaga put it the other day, the. Social media is the toilet of the internet, and <laughs> I think that's the perfect example. Like the guy saying, "What is this going to do to access all of these people online?" That's just reactionary, very reactionary, yeah, just immediate. Just blah, 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 blah. what are you thinking? Tell me right now, you know. And uh, all of those people, once you explain it, they would go, "Okay, obviously, I would do the same thing." You know, like yeah, you know, one thing that's always and this is like a complete change of conversation here but one thing that's always popped into my mind and this is looking at evolution Uh is that people always talk about you know evolution isn't this thing because blah 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 blah, and really they don't understand the full theory that you know physical changes in species and evolution in that way is something that happens at a very slow pace but social evolution i think is something that happens very quickly oh yeah totally and it can be social evolution that drives the other parts of it, especially when you're talking about you know, like the human race and shit like that. Mm-hmm. And I've always wondered what is social media going to do to that level of evolution for us? Mm-hmm. The, the, you can be so nasty without consequence online. Right. So I'm obviously that's horrific, right. but also you can use tools online to do so much good right. that it's such a crazy double edged sword yep. and it's all purely based on the user and how they're going to use it and how they're going to interact with other people. Right. And so it's like such a crucible of just like human nature. Yeah. It's just absolutely crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no, there's no feedback system really, you know, so someone can be nasty and then your only recourse is really to unfriend them or something like that. And there's no real, um, like, my cat Leonard, he's re- really good about not using his claws and not biting. 
and uh like when he's on a human versus i've been around some cats that are just like clawing everything and i've i think it's because leonard was raised with his brothers and sisters for the first few months of his um his uh life and so he was properly socialized and what that means is he learned that using his claws meant playtime was over or people got mad at him or his other animals got mad at him, you know, and he faced some consequences because they would... They would use their claws yeah. and he would get immediate feedback on, exactly. oh, that's what that feels yeah. like. Oh, bad. Don't do that. Got it. <laughs> right? If I go to that level, they go to that exactly, level. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I think that's... It's an interesting experiment in, like you said, human nature to see these social media things play out and people just reacting immediately to something and then it's just raw emotion back and forth you know and nobody's taking the time to think about what they're saying or you know and then and then they're the weird thing about facebook and social media platforms is it gives an illusion of uh um like uh notoriety i guess to whatever's on there not notoriety but like uh it's not i want to say esteem but you know, it, it gives a, a sense that this is something you should take seriously. Oh, okay, what yeah, like that? there's almost like a false gravitas that's to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so you know, you give you give more respect to something on the internet than you, you know. Oh, they have a website, and they. But when you when you figure out that how easy it is to create a website and put some garbage on it, you know suddenly you realize, uh, oh, okay, anybody can do it, and I don't trust this person, you know? <laughs> Example, InfoWars. Yeah, InfoWars, <laughs> you know, Roger Stone and his whole thing. You know, all those people, Rush Limbaugh, that type of, you know, those noisemakers, they, you know, they just, it's so easy to have a platform. It's so easy to do what we're doing, right? And uh, and put it out there, and it looks like, wow, you know, they're serious, and we should take them seriously, and do you know, and... I guess recently there's been a lot of noise about Ann Coulter sort of controlling, you know, the Trump administration agenda through her platform. Have you heard any of this? Uh, not really. Uh, there was, didn't she tweet something like kind of derogatory towards Trump? And it was like one of the first that she had really put out that wasn't supportive of him. And then Trump was like, I don't know anything about her. I don't talk to her. And it's like, oh, God, you're a dimwit. Yeah, yeah. No, I think... Um, <laughs> I mean, she's she's supposed to be the Trump base. Like, she's supposed to represent the Trump base, I guess. I don't know all this. This is what the, the media says. They're trying to characterize her as sort of a representation of the Trump base because a lot of people buy her books or whatever. Anyway, my whole point with all this is that it's weird for me to think of someone like her or Rush Limbaugh or Don Lemon even or any, any other you know, pundit as, as any deserving of any sort of like, why should their opinion or anything they're saying matter? Like how is Ann Coulter who spent her life writing books about, you know, current events and, you know, in kind of a mean way, <laughs> that's like her experience of life. Well, yeah, because she she goes hard in that direction. Yeah, because I mean, she, she is playing to a base. Because those are the people that are picking up her books. Is that she's more on the radical side of? But you know, I don't even know if you can call it really conservatism because no, it's things have moved so far away from the traditional definitions of that. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's a it's a narrative that is out there, and she's grabbing onto it, and she's writing about it. So 
to, it's like a feedback loop or whatever. Yeah. But my issue with it that I think is interesting why why people take that seriously because what has she done or what has Rush Limbaugh done other than sit in his office and talk? You know what I mean? Like, how does anybody think that these people have a point of view? that is actually reflective, like, they're just sitting there watching sort of what's on the news and talking about it. You know, it's like, I know enough about media that nobody in the media knows what they're talking about, really. You know, if, if you've ever been interviewed by a journalist and then read the article about what you told them, they got it 30% right, you know? Or, oh, yeah. You know, they clearly don't have an understanding of what you are doing. Yeah. And so, you know, so I always think it's weird when, when the media says, oh, well, Ann Coulter says this, so everybody's going to flock and turn and whatever. And I always think, like, man, how does anybody <laughs> what, what actually makes take her, her seriously? Yeah, right. What <laughs> makes her a voice of authority? That's the word I'm looking for, I guess, an authority figure on, you know, an expert. You know, you see something on Facebook. Oh, that person must know what they're talking about. It's on Facebook, you know? And it's, and it's, it's weird to me because... If you spend any time with a professional in any other setting, you realize how far off someone who isn't in that field knows what they're talking about. So for, for these people to talk anything about healthcare policy or energy policy or how, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, unless you're in the trenches really working on those issues, you're just adding noise to the system. Yeah, you know? you're just an, an enthusiast and a spectator yes. that has a platform, so you can just basically... And you're abusing that platform. Put, put those opinions out there. Yeah. It, it's it's like, um, like, I love stuff with space. Yeah. I watch documentaries like How the Universe Works and sure. stuff like that constantly. Right. Like, I've been slowly piecing the other collection of every season <laughs> of them on my Voodoo account, nice. and it's glorious. Nice. <laughs> but... When I go to talk about that stuff or try relate things, I don't remember so much of that shit. And so it's like, I'm putting those ideas out there, but I'm probably doing a pretty shit job on it. Right. And it's it's one thing when it's me talking about the universe on yeah, a podcast. Yeah, it's okay it's to put it out a, there. It's quite another when people are like talking about intense social issues like that. And they do have millions of people that listen to them and take them seriously. And it's like... That almost feeds back probably into those people where they're going into it with some ego. Well, because if you've ever listened to Ann Coulter or Rush Limbaugh, for sure they've got very high opinions of themselves. Well, number one, but number two, they're doing it in bad faith because you know it's a conscious decision to feed the beast. You know, that's a very good point. They're making the decision to feed into a narrative. They don't care whether it's true or not they care that people are listening to them. And it's the same with all cable news, you know. They're they're trying to get eyeballs. They're same with Facebook. They're trying to keep you glued to the page so that your ad clicks get them more money, you know. So so you know, you want people to make a good faith effort that when they're telling you something that they're doing it honestly. And if someone's got a secondary motive for something, like Ann Coulter, her motive is to sell books so and to be relevant so that, you know, that's how she makes a living. She's not running for office or setting policy or doing any sort of positive thing for anyone. She has no Ann Coulter foundation for the, you know, limping and whatever, you know, she does nothing. <laughs> for limping. <laughs> you know, whatever the foundation would be, you know. 
Uh, yeah. Or or to like Alex Honnold's foundation to bring power to Yeah, isn't he saying he gives like didn't he say in that documentary he gives like a third of his income yeah, to, his to foundation. a foundation? Yep. And of his moderately well off dentist. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> his moderately successful dentist income. Uh and uh well, and speaking of like news pundits, yeah. weren't all the news pundit stuff they showed in that hilarious? In like having a big, oh my a good gosh. idea of what he's out there doing, and then listening to them try and explain it. It was yeah. Oh, it's always so funny. To yeah, me. and like I can't imagine being him and being told all the time. But if you fall, you're gonna die. <laughs> and then he's like, "Yep, this again," you know. And it's just like, <laughs> well, and also when when you watch that documentary, if you were to lay out all the minutes of him actually on the wall. How much of it did he have the rope on of him, and how much did he not have the rope on him? The he was on the rope more more than way more. Yeah. And yeah so, yeah. but if you get on his Facebook page, there's all these dum dums commenting on there, especially if it's a picture of him climbing and he's on a rope, oh, right. which he's said on numerous interviews. You know, ninety five percent of the climbing I do is on a rope. Yeah, of course. But no, he pre games the, the heck out of these yeah, routes. It's the free you know? soloing that grabs the headlines. Well, there's so many people. Glad to see you on a rope, Alex. You know, you're going to die someday if you keep doing that. It's like, I for sure he doesn't read Facebook comments. Like, for oh, sure he does, so actually. Does no, he really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He responds every now and then. But, oh, my goodness. But, yeah. I mean, again, it's the toilet of the internet. So you have to, <laughs> you have to realize that you're fishing around turds looking for the ring you accidentally dropped in there or something. Um, but, yeah, no. I mean, and again, it's all reactionary. You watch a video and you create this picture in your mind of what's actually going on and it's not true like you just formed that idea from one picture like you assumed you saw a picture of him without a rope oh that's what he does all the time or that's what you're trying to fill in these gaps and you're not aware of how your mind is working that way because well, yeah, that's how our minds our minds are built to solve problems exactly and to fill the blanks in and to jump to conclusions yeah, and, and, yeah. and we're solving the problems based on what's coming in through our senses yes. and so when you're seeing something and you're trying to make sense of it right yeah your mind's going to jump to all these different conclusions right. and like the stuff with honald it's like that's not what he does all the time but no. when he does it it's horrifying yeah <laughs> in, in, a, in a very real way it's not horrifying to him but it's certainly horrifying to all the people in his life that are close to him right and you know and the one thing i learned about it is from watching that movie i used to think he he was doing it sort of for himself and all this stuff you can tell he's definitely doing it for the glory. There's a little bit of a the competitive, like, I'm not good enough unless I do this. So there's a little bit of an unhealthy aspect that motivates him. And that makes me nervous a little bit. But at the same time, you could see how how much, like, the only time he smiled <laughs> in that whole movie, <laughs> the only time he looked like he was enjoying life at all was at the top of the mountain after he did it. That's so strange. That's so strange. That's that's he's got such a high threshold for pleasure and pain, like for sensing emotion. That I think that's what drives him a little yeah. bit. Not to I, I shouldn't say that because I have no idea. And I'm, I'm just yeah, you know, we're, I'm just, we're we're making assumptions yeah, of our right, own. Right, right, right. But it's like you know, because maybe they they edited the movie to appear this way. You know, that, you, that's very true. You don't as well. know what he's really like. Well, they the definitely like misconstrued that. some facts in it when they talked and they when they were listing off all the. The free soloists who have died. Right. The majority of the people that they listed off actually died in like doing wing, weird stuff, doing wingsuit accidents. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dan Osmond, he died in a, a rope fall. Yes, doing um, the doing the what's that called? 
slingshotting weird stuff or whatever. He was basically doing a rope fall. Yeah, at you Yosemite. jump off a cli- uh, cliff and you swing around for a while. <laughs> and he left his gear up all winter. And then came back and just jumped on the same rig and yeah. it was like something broke. And yeah. Like, oh, it's well, like, and that's. Come on, man. You know are, better than that. Well, and that's it. That was going to be the last time he ever did it. That's what he said because oh, he had a daughter, goodness. you know? Man, they, there's lots of stories in climbing of pros fucking up. Because like that's all it takes is one time. Oh, have you heard that story about Lynn Hill? Uh-uh. So Lynn Hill was a, a real famous climber from the 90s, and she was the first woman to free climb the nose. Okay. Or where she was the first person to of free climb the nose. Of El Cap. Yeah. It was, it'd been done on gear and stuff like that, basically, as like, um, oh, what the hell do they call that? When you go out, aid climbing, you, aid climbing. Yeah. yeah, I heard a quote you, one you time basically that said, "Ladder up the mountain." <laughs> exactly. I heard a quote one time that said, "Aid climbing is like having a really sick moped. It's <laughs> it's really fun to drive around, but at the end of the day, it's just a really sick moped." Yeah. <laughs> you know, when they showed the first time any someone ever climbed El Cap in like the fifties or whatever it was, and it took them what fourteen months or something they said to climb it because they couldn't do it all at once. Oh, yeah. yeah. But they were just like, they were drilling stuff into the wall. They were putting ladders up. They were trying to, anything they could just to get up this thing. Oh, yeah. That, that, was, that, really was, what, that was the name of the game back then. And then right. once aid climbing was too easy, right. then it was, okay, let's, let's free climb it and use right. just our, our hands and our, and our, and our, and our feet. And, and like the rope will just be there to catch you right. if, if you do fuck up. Right. And, right. and it's crazy how it has evolved from there. Um, but the, the thing with Lynn Hill was she... Basically, she had done the nose and gotten a lot of notoriety and stuff from that. And she was climb, sport climbing in France. And she was a cold day and she was tying in to her harness at the base of the climb. And she was like engaged in conversation, I think, with somebody. And midway through tying her knot, she did something where she either put a jacket on or took a jacket off. And then never finished tying her knot. Oh, my gosh. And then got to the top of this really tall route. And she was she, she, and she did it successfully. She got to the top without falling or anything. Take, leans back, and basically her rope unthreads from her harness, and oh, she fell like a hundred feet or something like that. Gosh. But she crashed through a whole bunch of pine trees that were at the base. Caught her, and it decelerated her enough that basically she just had some bumps and bruises. Holy cow! And, and she's such a beast. And, and Lynn Hill, she's like five foot one, right, right, or something like that. You know, so rock solid. Maybe she didn't build up that much kinetic energy. <laughs> <on the laughs> down but i mean she came away from it just with a really gnarly story and a powerful lesson learned that the best of people can can make those mistakes Keep the basics john in. long the the older gentleman that's in uh free solo and he's also in the dawn wall mm-hmm. basically kind of quantifying stuff john long was in the first one day free climb up uh el cap mm-hmm. and so basically he was like with jim bridwell and another fella and they did the nose in a day mm-hmm. and it was the first time that, that, that had ever been done right and you know and they were aid climbing it they were getting right. up as fa- you know as any means you possible right, basically right. but right. just do it in a day right and and he had an accident uh like within the last decade i think in a climbing gym where he didn't finish tying his knot and he fell off and like broke his leg or something like that Jeez. and it's like this is a guy who's written multiple how to climb books right like, if you're in climbing, you know who John Long is. Right. And the fact that, oh, shit, can happen to him. <laughs> well, you know, even when I'm at the gym, we count the knots. We count the parallel lines. One, two, three, four, five, six. Mm-hmm. Before we climb. And, you know, when I was there, I would climb multiple hours a day for, you know, several months there at a time. And uh, so people got to know me. And, they'd always, you know, there were always people that would look at me 
when I would like count the knot and count my partner's knot or whatever, and they would kind of they noticed it and they thought it was weird that this me I'm counting the you don't know how to tie in or whatever. It's like no, you just don't you don't know until you look. Whether yeah, it's it's, par- it's part of the double check. Yeah, and you don't like literally you put a jacket on, you think you tied it because you get it becomes such second like I could tie a knot without even thinking about it, but when you're not thinking about it, that's, that's bad. When, that's when mistakes can happen. <laughs> exactly. It's like, there's there's no, when climbing is an inherently dangerous sport. Yes. And if you do anything on autopilot, that's where er- that's where error can come in. Right. And a lot of the stuff, if you do properly, if you're using safe gear, yeah. if you if you have it set up correctly, yep. if if your belayer's paying attention, that's it. That's well, that's one of the things right there is that a lot of accidents in climbing come down to human error. All of it's, them. It's not gear Basically error. Basically, all of them. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a publication that gets put out every year called, I think, Accidents in North American Rock Climbing or something like that, where mm-hmm. you can go back and read all the accident reports that happened in climbing in the mountains over the past year. And a lot of them do boil down Bad to human decisions. error. Bad decisions. Yep. I mean, sometimes it's gear failure. Like, I remember reading a story a long time ago that basically a guy was going out and taking a stick clip which is basically like an extendable pole that you can use to, you clip your rope into the end of this pole and then you extend it out 15, 20 feet. And then you can just reach up and just clip your rope into the next bolt that's way up the wall. And the reason you do this is because the first 15 feet of climbing usually is unprotected. Yeah. And and you don't want to fall 15 feet. No, especially, (laughs) and it's like people might have this idea that it's not like a a Roadrunner cartoon where it's just flat level ground and then it's just rock that goes straight up. It's like, no, the base of a wall is... You could there, die from a 15-foot fall. Well, yeah. There's, there's, I mean, the, the rock could be weird. There could be tree roots everywhere. The, like you could, you could break an ankle just walking yeah. next and to then, this wall, let alone dropping 15 feet. And you can't get out of there. You know, like, <laughs> Yeah, try you know, and carry somebody out. Like, yeah. No way. And, and if you're down in Kentucky or whatever, that's, you, that's how you get out. Like, they can't bring an ambulance in and get you. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. You can't be lifted out with a helicopter from there. You've got to get you out of the valley and, you know whatever but yeah i remember reading this article about this guy who was stick clipping he was solo climbing he was stick clipping his way up a wall and there was a bolt that was way up off the ground that that was his only point of protection just a single bolt which they say you're never supposed to do right and the bolt failed and the the guy decked and died and nobody even knew he was out there and so i I think i think it was a few days later that they were like maybe he went out there to solo yep Found his car in the park. So what, was he like in a grigri or something? Or how does that work? Yeah, there's multiple ways to do okay. it. It could have been something like that. Yeah. Um, like I've gone out and I've, I've kind of done that solo climbing before, mm-hmm. uh, especially when I was doing the, the route workout at Pictured Rocks for the, the Climbers Coalition. Right. Because, um, yeah, what was funny is that I got introduced to that Climbers Committee by basically being like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, don't do that, Joe. Right. And, and then... Then I, I got a mentor. I kind of teamed up with Troy and expressed interest in, well, I would like to learn how to safely do all this stuff. And now, today, years later, now I'm part of that. I'm on that. I'm one of the people on the management committee. Yeah. And so, as as a result, I've gone out with a, a lot of times rappelling into routes, checking all the bolts, painting them with spray paint, making sure they're not getting shiny and causing, you know, like a visual pollution of the park and stuff. And there were plenty of times where I would do that and be on a moderate route and I'd get to the base of the wall and just drop all my gear and leave it right there. And then it's just me with, you know, hiking shoes on, and, but I got a rope and a grigri. Right. And I'm like, let's see how hard this is to climb in, in hiking shoes. And right. so there's plenty of routes out there that yes. I freed from the ground to the top in hiking shoes, but it was on a rope solo. Right. Where it's like you'd climb up so far and then you'd 
And, and, and you see Honnold doing that yep. when he's working that boulder section on Free Solo, where basically yep. he's climbing up and he's on a rope, yep. and he's got that metal device that the rope's going through, and then he's just pulling the slack out. Yep. That's freaky too. I, yeah, could, I couldn't totally. imagine doing that thousands of feet yeah, off the no, ground. Right? I'd get scared being thirty feet up. You yeah, know, right, but. right. Well, and and just to stay in this vein, and Todd's going to kill me, um, but we were out, Warren. You know Warren, right? Yeah, I met Warren. Yeah, Warren, his wife, um, me, Todd. We're all out climbing, and we're at Mild Iowa or Mild Wall or whatever that's called. Super polished. We, we like going there because it's a nice warm-up, but it's really not a nice warm-up because it's so polished. that It's, <laughs> it's very condition-dependent on whether you're going to have fun or you're going to be kind of terrified and gripped on your warm-ups, yes. especially as a beginner. Yes, because, you know, and the reason we kept going back there, because if it's dry out, it's nice. You can go and there's big pockets and you just basically climb up and it's nice, get you in the rhythm. Um, and so we were out there climbing and Todd was uh, climbed up. He got to the first bolt um he was setting the route and he you know put his beaner up put his rope through so first one in is good so we're like great you're up and that first one on that route i think this was the third one over the longest the tallest one tallest one whippersnapper yeah whippersnapper and originally called jungle bunny in the community did not like that one jungle bit. bunny what is that what's wrong with yeah, that that's a little derogatory for who uh, is I, it a racist thing? Or? I, I think it can be construed as racist. Against which race, I guess? I, <laughs> I, I, sorry, I'm just trying to process Jungle Bunny. I, I think Jungle Bunny can be thrown around the same way as like the vein of like a like a camel jockey okay. or, or something like that, where it's, it's derogatory basically to anybody who would come from like a jungle type area. Got it. Okay. So. <laughs> I've should, never heard this. I should have so left anyway. the history lesson out. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's fine. I, I've collated all this fucking weird data, right? Like over the years about Iowa's climbing routes. That's why I wrote a guidebook. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, I totally interrupted your no, story no. there. No. So he. So he's anyway to con- for Joe's context, not for any other people's. But anyway, that first bolt is 15 feet off the ground or so. It's pretty high up before you clip in. I'm a huge fan of stick clips. Todd was like, whatever, I'll do it, you know, because Todd is, you know. Todd never carried a stick clip. I remember yeah. times going out climbing with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> never did. And, uh, and but Todd is a very, very, very strong, very, very uh, um, thoughtful climber. And so it wasn't like it was super risky. But he gets up there. He climbs past the first bolt. And so it's about at his knees or so. And so he's up and he's almost reaching, ready for the next one. And his rope, it goes, dink. And the rope just falls to the ground. It unclipped itself. It unclipped itself. There was no tension on it. There was no nothing. We don't know how it happened. He still doesn't know how it happened. I remember sitting there because I was taking pictures. And I was standing there looking. And then Warren's wife was belaying. And then I hear, tink. And I see the rope fall. And then uh, Warren's wife is like, um, Todd, you are no longer clipped in. <laughs> <laughs> you are off belay. Yes, yes. <laughs> and And Todd's like, what (laughs) she's like your rope just unclipped itself and he's like okay and then you could tell that he was a little bit you know freaked out by it but then he's like okay and so then he's just like all right and then he just kind of made a couple moves and he was really careful clip new rope clip on the next bolt and then it was like whoa because the bottom of that 
like you said, it's not a Roadrunner cartoon over there. No, it, like, it, would, it's, it would suck. Yeah, super messy ground there. I bet he had that first carabiner. I bet it was back clipped. Well, because that can that, it ha- wasn't, that happens though. really easy. That's it's, weird. Yeah, then. yeah. No, it, there was no Z clip. There was no back clip. It was the first clip. There was no weight on the rope. There was nothing because he was. It was just there was a you know it was just kind of sitting there. Mm-hmm. There was no tension on it, and it just. Tink. And we looked at it. It wasn't flipped. It wasn't twisted. It wasn't upside down or doing anything weird. So we don't know what, how that, because in order for it to, so the way a rope comes unclipped usually, right, it's in there and there's like a gate. And if the rope kind of opens the gate on its own from the outside, you can get a rope to slip out. Yeah. And uh, that's the only possible thing that must have happened there was somehow the rope. Yeah, maybe there was like a slight there, kink there in the rope. There might have been a kink in the rope. But. And, and it just caused it to, part of the rope pressed that gate in, mm-hmm. and then the whole thing, it just unclips itself and falls out. Yep. It was it was the most wild thing. So It's a horrifying scenario. Absolutely horrifying. So that's another example of, you know, that was that human error? I don't think so. Um, because, I mean, obviously it was. Something in the way he placed the rope uh, caused it to come out. And the way he was climbing, but what nobody there, including him, including me, including everybody there, saw anything that was improper about how he clipped that first, you know, how he set the the uh, beaner, how he placed the um, rope. So that was, that was just a real like this can happen, like you know, yeah. like there is inherent risks to climbing, and you just need to really. Make sure when you're climbing, you're pretty confident about what you're doing. So, and that you have a plan, you know, and that you don't just, you know, like I'm never someone that really trusts the gear, like wholeheartedly. You know, I'm always like. You definitely don't ever want to blindly trust the yeah, gear. Yeah, no, it is, a, it is a last resort thing for me, you know. So, I, you know, there's people who will fall on, you know, gear pretty confidently. And, uh, and you know, and I'm like. For me, it's like I'm not getting on a route unless I'm really sure that I'm going to have a pretty good chance of climbing it. And if I do fall or blow or something, it's going to be close to an anchor point that I can, you know, I'm not going to put a lot of stress on any piece of anything, you know, mm-hmm. just because because you, if you're not aware of all the imperfections or all the uh, weakness points, then you know, you might not know that you're taking a risk, you know? So that's that's the tough part about climbing is knowing where the risks are and making it, sure yeah. you understand them all. It's definitely something that comes with experience mm-hmm. of, of the sport. Mm-hmm. And, man, if you, if you hang out at a public crag enough, mm-hmm. you will see accidents. It, oh, yeah. it will happen. Oh, yeah. Um, that same route you're talking about, whippersnapper, I remember having... Uh, some beginners with me, and so we were pretty much just camped out on that wall because mm-hmm. there's three easy routes in a row, right? On there, and so it gets a lot of traffic. Mm-hmm. And these people showed up, and they were setting up on Whippersnapper, which is probably about the they're they're all three graded the same, but Whippersnapper is probably about the stiffest, yeah, of that grade because it's the only one that has like a defined crux, right? That is, it's fairly low to the ground. So basically, where Todd came unclipped, he was starting to head into the crux. Yep. So that, I yeah, think, right. I think the crux is between. It's about halfway up. I think it's between bolts two and three. Just yep. basically, or not halfway like up, you but just clip before bolt two, and then you go through the crux, and yep. so it's very well protected. Like right, they're close to each other. I- exactly, yeah. and then it's 
quite it's called whippersnapper also because there's a, a bit of a run out between the last bolt and the anchors. So if you do pump from the anchors, it's totally normal to take a 15, 20 footer. Yep. Well, we're set up on this route that's right next to it, and these people from the Quad Cities, I believe, are on Whippersnapper. And we're talking, and they're like, oh, what's your name? Like, oh, Joe Stark. And they're like, holy shit, I have your book. Yeah, right. And so cool. I'm, like, I'm like, hey, right on. Thank you. Thank you. I hope it helps. And they're like, you have to sign it. And I'm like, okay, this is oh, weird. <laughs> and so like, I'm like, I'm like, I don't, you don't need me to sign it. I'm like, I didn't write that because I'm some hard man that's done every route here. I'm like, I'm just a total dork that memorized everything. And I wanted a list. And, yeah, yeah, I right. memorized everything that was available to me about this park. And so I just happened to know the route names and grades and even some beta stuff just from different conversations I've had. And so it's like, yeah, I just put that all into a book and put it out there for the community. And they're like, oh, you got to sign it anyway. And I'm like, all right, fine. And so then while I'm kind of, and I'm on, I'm on the route at the time. And so like then, you're tied in or yeah, I was, okay. I was climbing the route. And so I'm just having a conversation with them while I'm climbing that middle route. Oh my gosh. So they're asking you to sign the book while you're both on the wall. Well, they, they were just setting up. And I was actually on the wall at the time, and because, I'm just having a conversation the with them. Steepness, or so like they can talk. Oh, or are you, or are you way high up while yeah, they're I'm shouting probably, at I'm you? I'm probably like 20, 20 feet oh, up in I the air, it. so, so you're talking down to the, to the I got yeah, it. talking to them on the ground. And so then you know I lower off, and I'm talking to them, and this guy's going up, and he's like, "Yeah, we just climb in this gym in the Quad Cities. This is our first time ever climbing outside, oh, geez. and this is." the first time any of us would lead climb. And so I drew the short straw. And so I'm going to go up this route. No, no, no. And, and, and get it all set up. And I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, okay. I'm like, well, you know, be safe, have fun. And the guy's wife was belaying him. And so, you know how there's that fallen tree at the base. Yeah. She's tied to that tree. So she's way back away from the wall. Yeah. Yeah. To basically weight her down. So if you're a heavy climber and you got a lightweight belayer, Uh uh-huh, like I, I remember the one fall I took where I went all the way to the ground and I had my friend Shige belaying me. I oh pulled Shige, all, I pulled <laughs> yeah. Shige up to the first bolt. I bet I passed him on the way down. <laughs> yeah. Like it was hairy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was hairy. Yes. Like when I was laying in bed that night, I was thinking about how close to the edge I was on that. And I'm like, maybe that wasn't cool. Okay. So brief interruption, and we'll continue from the accident that is about to occur. <laughs> Uh, and to build some, um, you know, whatever for that. But I, so I got lead certified at VE in Chicago, um, with Todd. Okay. And, um, vertical endeavors. Yes. It's a gym. I don't think it exists anymore. It's owned by lifetime fitness. Now I think there's still a climbing gym, you know, it's the same gym, but it's a new ownership because vertical endeavors now is like a giant warehouse where, uh, all the, uh, uh, it's it's, a, it's like a Walmart that they turned into a uh, <laughs> no shit yeah it's amazingly huge it's <laughs> the problem is you know at VE they were like 70 foot or so the wall and there were the big ceilings that you could climb over and everything this one's limited I think it only gets up 50 60 feet um, only yeah I mean <laughs> for an artificial wall that's still very tall well I mean the maybe it's only 40 feet or something but it's a warehouse so I mean it's an old warehouse that they filled with chips and you know and uh and there's massive walls everywhere. So it's a pretty wonderful, magical place. But anyway, so I got certified at VE, lead climbing. And I'll never forget, in order to get certified, usually they, you, you know, you'd have a partner. And, and it was just going to be Todd was going to be the person that I would belay for while he led. And then he would belay for me while I led. And uh, But then there was this really, really massive, stocky, 
guy from like Ukraine or something like that who also wanted to be lead certified. And they're like, well, do you want to just do it with him? And I said, sure. And so uh, he uh, gets on the rope and I'm leading for him. And just so the listeners out there, I'm like five foot six, 130 pounds. And so I'm a, I'm a pretty light, you know, person. <laughs> and this guy was probably like 5'10", probably 220, 230. You know, he was a, he was a decent, you know, kind of, he was just, a full person, you know, <laughs> built like a football player. Yeah, he was. He looked like a rugby player, you know. So they're uh-huh. not not necessarily super tall, but just like a, a boxy guy. And uh, and so I'm like, sure, whatever. And I knew, you know, from climbing that if someone falls, then you're gonna you're gonna go up a little bit because as part of this lead climbing test is you have to fall to show you that you know how to fall and how to you know land against the wall and then so you know how to catch someone and so on. And so he gets up about uh, two-thirds of the way up, and they said, okay, do a fall. And then he's like, okay, falling. And then he fell, and I I went off like a rocket. I was like, <laughs> And I went up about 15 feet, and I'm just like, zoop, boop, and went against the wall, and I'm like, okay. And then he was a couple feet above me, you know, and I'm just like, Okay, dokie, you know? <laughs> and then he had to, like, you know, like that get... That happened really fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, zoom, you know, just went up into the... And so then, uh, you know, then he had to wait himself on the wall, and I had to, like, repel myself down to the ground, and then he continued climbing. And then when I fell, it was like, dink, and I didn't move at all, you know? And uh, but Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah. like if you got a heavy belayer climbing... It's, it's belaying you like they really need to jump <laughs> yes. at the right time. Otherwise, they might spike you right into the wall. Yeah, it's true, and it, yeah, and it's called a soft catch in a the soft catch in the community. And uh, I, I always, by nature of my ratio, yeah. <laughs> I always provide a wonderful soft catch. I always get soft catches because no matter what, I'm pulling that I'm pulling my belayer off the ground usually. Yep. yep. So. Anyway, continue your story about <laughs> so, the accident that's so coming. I'm, I'm talking to this guy, and he's telling me about, you know, oh, I've never, I've never lead climbed before. This is crazy, by the way. Well, yeah. and So for no one to be in the group that has ever led outside to but anyone to think that's a good idea. That, but the stoke was high. Right. And they were willing to, to get out there and do right. this thing. Right. And, and so they want me to sign the book. Mm-hmm. And so he's telling me that he's never fallen before, and he's oh, like kind of scared about it. And I was like, I was like, it's really not a big deal. I was like, if you have, if you just double check before you leave the, before you head off the ground, right. don't back clip right. because you don't want the rope to unclip itself. Right. If you were to fall, don't right. get the rope behind your leg. If you fall with the rope behind your leg, it's going to flip you upside down. Right. I was like, those are the three cardinal rules of of leading. Don't do either any of those three things, and you should be fine. Right. I'm like, when you get to the top of the route. You, the the nature of the rock it's going to want to lead you to the right mm-hmm. i was like but that way goes to failure yes i was like you need to go straight up yep and, and and you'll be fine yep i was like there are good holds there but if you go to the right there's no, no good thing. holds for your right hand right because you actually need to be shifted about three feet over to your left to be in the good clipping stance right. and there's a reason this route's called whippersnapper you'll take a huge fall up there trust me i've done it yeah and he's like oh okay well i'm a little bit nervous i'm like ah you'll be fine You'll be fine. Don't worry. And so I signed his book, Take Your Fall, <laughs> Jay Stark. And he gets up there and he goes to the right. And I'm like, no. no. I'm like, no. Oh, gosh. He's doing what I told him not to. But, you know, he's concentrating. I don't want to be gone. that guy on the ground. Yeah. Like, no, you're not doing it. Right? Yeah, right. And so I'm like, I'm just going to watch this unfold. And uh, uh, Whippersnapper has got cold shuts 
for anchors on the top that basically have been hammered closed. So yep. it's just like a small, really thick steel ring that's mm-hmm. bolted to the wall up top. He puts his index finger no. through that. No. Now, you never put your finger in the bolts in climbing, because if you were to fall, and if your finger were to get basically... It's going to stay there. You You're will, not. There, there's instances where people have kind of had their fingers ripped off, and it's just kind of hanging by the tendon, yeah. basically. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's horrifying to yes. even think about. Right. And so it's something you just don't do. You don't do and it. so immediately from the ground, I'm like, don't do that. Yeah. I'm like, if you fall, you will lose your finger. Yeah. I'm like, don't ever do that. Yeah. And so he pulls his finger out and then he's he's getting more and more off balance and then the fall is all of a sudden he realizes it's inevitable in his mind and he panics yep and just starts clawing at the wall oh, like a cat no. like basically bloodies his fingertips panic crawling oh no like clawing at the wall yeah and he takes the biggest gnarliest fall that i'd ever seen somebody take off that where he fell half the like he came into the wall you know usually when you fall in lead climbing Basically, it's 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 almost like you're a little kid playing patty cake. Yeah, you just you, you don't hold on to the rope, right? Because then it's going to throw your gravity off, right? And also, you want your hands in front of you to, to catch, catch the wall right. so that your face doesn't catch the wall. Yes, and then you kind of get your feet out in front of you also, so it's like yeah, you it, just it's it's weird. You've got patty four cake. nice contact points to limit the exactly impulse. you got your knees bent to kind of yeah right. absorb the shock of yeah. it and the rope stretches a little bit and yeah. hopefully your belayer is going to give you a soft catch like, like you said it's really not a big deal yeah if you know what you're doing yeah yeah to fall now to get a soft catch the belayer has to jump up in the air mm-hmm. and then that little bit of inertia of them going up is then joined by your fall the, the big pull on the rope and mm-hmm. so they get pulled up a little bit and then the climber gets decelerated rather than just coming to a, a hard stop right well his belayer was tied to a tree there was no soft catch right this guy hit the end of a rope like Ka-ching. a sudden jarring stop and since the rope's not going to go any further, the only way for that motion to go is to slam Straight him into the, into the wall. Right. And he came into the wall sideways. Oh, no. And he hit that wall. <laughs> it was like a cue ball in a sock. Jeez. Right? I mean, yeah. he hit the Crack. wall like that. He hit so hard that um, as he was then lowering off, he had blood dripping out of his hands. He had blood dripping down his leg from the side that impacted the wall. And basically, they just lowered him down to the ground into like a seated position. Yeah. He just kind of laid there licking his wounds. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. And um, oh, I felt so bad for the guy. I had literally just written in his book, Take Your Fall. And, <laughs> oh, no. I forgot about that. Oh. <laughs> and so, like, I'm, I'm talking to the guy. I'm like, I'll tell you what, man. That was, that was a heroic fall. I was like, most lead falls are not like that. Yeah, that was not a good lead fall. That was a bad lead fall. And so then then they were like, okay, let's swallow the pride. Will you set this up as a top rope so we can play on it? I'm absolutely. Yes. I'm like, I'm like, absolutely. I'm like, you you already have your rope up to the top bolt. Right. So I mostly top roped it and set it up for him. But I'm starting to hit a little bit of dry throat here. Do you want to take a quick break? Sure. Awesome. And we're back. Hello. <laughs> um, he won't let me leave. Yeah. No. <laughs> he just fed me those, so that was nice. <laughs> got a spoonful of water. <laughs> uh, one of the things I definitely wanted to talk about with you is we, we got to talk about some stuff with outer space. Space. And you had posted something on Facebook a while back about Kuiper Belt objects. Mm-hmm. And well, that and one of the things is that 
when people aren't interested at all in space, it blows my mind because in my mind, all you have to do is look up outside at night and be like, that should be the craziest shit mm-hmm. going on right now. But so many people are focused on, you know, mundane, everyday yeah. stuff. And why not? Because that's the grind that you're participating in. And truthfully, you can't see the sky really ever in a yeah. city, you know? Oh, that's very true. There's almost no night sky anymore. I remember having my friend Rebecca on the mm-hmm. podcast, and she lives in New York. Oh, yeah. And she's like, we can see like two stars. Yeah. I'm no. Like, wow. A friend of mine uh, named Dominic who graduated from Iowa um he's from wvu he went to undergrad there and i think he was doing a uh um kind of an outreach thing and he i remember him telling just blew my mind that there were some people that came to this um whatever he was doing and they're from new york city and they'd never seen a star in their life and they were 30 40 years old you know they just never left the city they have spent their whole lives in the city and it's so bright there yeah those two stars you could see if you got outside between the buildings, you know, but if you're between the buildings, you know, there, you can't probably see much of the sky and you never really think to look and it takes a while to really look for it. But yeah, people in their thirties, forties, I have never seen a star in my life. It just blew his mind. And, uh, you know, even someone like me, I've never, uh, truthfully seen a purely dark sky, you know, like maybe when I was younger, we might've been someplace in Colorado at night, or something, but as an adult, I'm still waiting to do, you know, the middle of Arizona uh, deep sky trip where you can actually, no light pollution, you're in the middle of nowhere, you can actually see a decent Milky Way uh, yeah, galaxy. Yeah, and that's something you know. that I've always seen in photographs, and it's mm-hmm. always, it's kind of something that's on a bucket list, mm-hmm. where it's like, I want to see that, that Milky Way look to the sky, and mm-hmm. it almost seems like a lot of photographers, do they have to do almost like a time lapse or just a a slow exposure to be able to catch that? Yeah, you you definitely have to do a longer exposure to see a lot of the stuff you see in those pictures, but to see the Milky Way and uh, with your own eyes, you definitely can. Um, And the closest I've been near as an adult was the drive-in theater that's around these parts, kind of out in the middle of nowhere on a farm somewhere. You could definitely see the Milky Way. You can definitely see way more stars than you think you should be able to see, you know, even in Iowa. Um, yeah. So, so that was my first sort of like, whoa, I need to see a true dark sky because uh, the closest I got was on a cruise in the Caribbean and at night went out in the middle of the ocean and the stars were sparkling like I've never seen a star sparkle before. Oh, like cool. The twinkling was wild and the sky was black. Like, I've never seen a black sky like that. Um, but the lights from the cruise ship created so much that it wasn't like you, you couldn't really see the Milky Way and that kind of stuff because the local light pollution was enough to kind of wash out the faint stars. But the bright stars were twinkling like crazy. So I thought that was pretty cool because you could see them go from really dim to really bright versus only from very dim to a little bit less dim. <laughs> Uh-huh. In like is, a city. is the twinkling effect, is that caused by like gases in the atmosphere and light yeah. refla- refracting off it more or less? Yeah, exactly. As light travels through the atmosphere, you, you get twinkles from lensing effects, yeah. Yeah, so like kind of in that vein of, you know, it, to me, space is the most interesting thing there is and you only got to look up for it. The one thing that even the most blasé of like universe like watchers has an opinion on is the fact that Pluto's not a planet anymore. That's right. It's a dwarf planet, and it's like they can't accept that. Yep. And one of the things that was most impressive to me about your Facebook post is the fact that there's like over 2,000 
Kuiper objects that are maybe around that size. And for sure, they've identified at least five dwarf planets out there right now, and some of them are bigger than Pluto. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was... So um, So just a quick history of the solar system, right? Um, if a star explodes, it um, or when a star explodes, it, 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 it's quite large. It's a big explosion at the end of the life of a star. It runs out of fuel to burn, and the whole thing collapses in on itself and basically uh, causes the star to explode. Um, and it's because of the same process that creates a, a nuclear bomb. If you push all these things really close together, you create this fusion uh, of matter into heavier elements. So on the periodic table, you start at hydrogen, which is one, helium, and so on. You go up to the iron and platinum, and you get to more and more uh, heavier elements on the periodic table. Those all come from hydrogen, ultimately, and the hydrogen fuses into helium, and then that fuses down, down, down the line until iron. And then when... Uh, and iron is the star killer. Iron is the star killer, and I don't know how technical I should get about it, but basically um, fusion, you may have heard about it, is if you have a, you know, a cup of seawater, you can power New York City you know, for a year. Uh, with just one cup of water because you, if you just fuse all the hydrogen in the water, the amount of energy you get off of it is enough to power New York for a while. So we're continuously trying to uh, create fusion energy on Earth through tokamaks and uh, there's something called ITER in France which is trying to fuse hydrogen to release energy. We can totally do it, but we have to put more energy in than we get yeah, out. Yeah, so it's inefficient at yeah, the moment. Yeah, yeah exactly. So... Of course, we can fuse things. Our uh, fusion bombs, the biggest uh, weapons we have, they're, they're fusion reactors. They blow up stuff. But we can, we can have an uncontrolled fusion reaction, or we can, we can smash hydrogen pellets together and, and get a fusion reaction to happen. But can we, can we apply enough pressure, enough energy to... Because to, the reason is, is hydrogen has two positively charged nuclei, a proton and a proton, and they're both positively charged. And it's like trying to put two magnets together, two north sides of a magnet. If you've ever done that, you know that they refuse to be close to each other. Yeah. And that's the same thing with the hydrogen atom. Those protons don't want to be next to each other. And if you get them close enough, then the strong force is what it's called, takes over, pulls those two protons together, and will combine them. But you have to overcome that uh, electrostatic barrier to get that. So, you know, if we collide hydrogen atoms together, we can get them to fuse. Or if we, like the laser ignition facility, uh, one of the Department of Energy labs, um, if you shine a bunch of lasers from a 360 degree angle and and force them all of the radiation pressure onto a capsule and cause it to collapse, we can get fusion. But you know, all of these processes, or if you confine a plasma with a magnetic field like at ITER, you can release the energy, you can force them to fuse, but the amount of energy required is more than we get out. So anyway, long story short, um, you can fuse light elements into heavy elements, that's called fusion, and you will release energy during that process until you get to iron. If In order to get heavier elements with fusion, um, beyond iron, it actually takes energy out of the system to create heavier elements. So uh, this is why nuclear reactors like we have today for power, they actually do fission 
They start with heavy elements like uranium, and they split the atoms, and that releases energy, and that gets them closer to iron from the heavier side. From the lighter side, the closer you get to iron, the more energy you get from fusion. If you go up from iron, you get it actually takes energy to do that. So what happens in a start is when you fuse hydrogen together and you get helium, and then you fuse helium together and so on, you get down to silicon, and then when you get to iron, when iron starts to fuse in the core of a star, it takes all of the energy that the star has to do it. So instead of releasing energy, which is what the sun is, it's a big ball of energy being released from the fusion of hydrogen. Once you get rid of that hydrogen source and you just have iron left, it's going to fuse the iron. It'll be happy to, right? But it's going to take all of the energy that's holding the star up, the outward force pushing out. Yeah, because you got gravity wanting to compact everything together. Yep. But because of fusion, it's creating so much energy that that energy is expanding out that it's this titanic struggle between the two forces. Exactly. And the, the size of a star is exactly proportional to the energy that it is releasing. And that's what gives it that the, the radius of it is the gravity of its mass pulling down and the that balance outward of the fusion the heavier the mass the faster it burns so high mass stars don't live very long and uh but anyway when you get to high uh, iron the star collapses on itself and when that happens um normally a, a star is fusing all of those like you look at the sun it looks like that whole thing's on fire but the fusion is really happening at the core at the center of it the rest of it's just hot and it's just radiating that energy out what happens when the star collapses is all of that matter ends up at a very small space and you end up with a lot of fusion that happens very quickly because there's no slow burning phase and so the explosion is quite titanic at that point and just flies out into space when that happens it leaves its material around for another generation of stars to form in okay and that's where a solar system comes from a modern solar system our sun is like a second, third, fourth generation star. So there are heavy elements. Iron is in the sun right now. There's no way for the sun to make iron on its own. So it had to have come from a previous star that went supernova is what we call it. Left its iron, all the gold, platinum in the earth, in the veins of the rocks of the earth come from neutron star mergers. Um, from the energy released there. That's the only way you could get gold and platinum or one of the most uh, probable ways. And uh, so so a solar system forms in gas, dust. The first stars formed in just pure hydrogen, and then you just end up with stars burning hydrogen into helium, and then when they explode, you get chunks of iron, chunks of you know, you know carbon and calcium and all these other bits of stuff floating around. Could be planet-sized, you know? And, uh, and then over time, all these little pieces, they self-gravitate towards each other, and then they form another star, for example, in the, in the dust, in the remnants. And uh, you end up with these things called planetesimals, which are just little rocks that stick to each other from electrostatic and gravitational forces. And they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until they become planets. Um, and so there should be a significant number of all sizes of objects in our solar system, and you have a planet like Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and then between Mars and Jupiter is what we call the asteroid belt, and it's basically the stuff that ended up not forming a planet, and it's just little pieces left over, some garbage. And is that because of its proximity to Jupiter? 
Uh, Jupiter definitely plays a role in uh, shepherding uh, some of the asteroids around or influencing where they are based on Jupiter's yeah, well, gravity. Well, is that why objects in the asteroid belt weren't able to accrete into a planet? I don't know if that's the case. Maybe that is a conclusion. Um, I'm not sure if Jupiter had a role for that. I do know that, um, you know, sometimes you get a lot of collisions. So some of these, like Ceres, is the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt, and it is uh, a dwarf planet. It meets the definition of a dwarf planet. So Ceres and, and uh, Pluto are both dwarf planets, and if you Google Ceres and you look at it, it looks like a planet. It's a big sphere, and that's one of the definitions for a planet is to be a circle or a sphere. Um, and uh, so, so those asteroids, um, some of them, like the iron asteroids, they're a little bit rarer, harder to find, um, because when a planet gets hot, it differentiates is the term and that's basically when you leave uh, salad dressing on the shelf, it differentiates into layers. The heavier stuff sits at the bottom. That's where all the garlic pieces are and salt and pepper. All the oils and stuff separate into their different areas. Same thing happens. That's why the core of the earth is iron and the surface of the earth is rock and silicates and stuff like that is because when we were really hot and molten, um, the heavier stuff sunk to the center and the lighter stuff floated to the top. And so um, if you have an asteroid that does that and then something smashes into it and breaks it into pieces, you're going to have stony asteroids everywhere. And then you're going to have iron asteroids. You're going to have fewer iron asteroids, but they're going to be made out of the insides of, you know, so if we find an asteroid that's iron, it's probably from a differentiated asteroid or one that was big enough to, um, you know, uh, was big enough and hot enough to sort of separate into the layers and then something hit it, broke it into pieces and scattered the iron parts around and the rocky parts around. Um, and so so by studying, you know, what the asteroids are made out of, and we've, you know, the Japanese, European Space Agency, and NASA, we've all sent probes to asteroids now to investigate what they're made out of and see what, what's going on with them to understand this origin. Um, but the asteroids are just one part of a spectrum of objects in our solar system and they're between the orbits of uh, Mars and Jupiter mostly then there's a couple of um, there's a couple of gravitationally stable points that we call Lagrange points uh, that are in the same orbit as Jupiter in terms of the same same distance from the Sun and they are in front of Jupiter in the orbit and behind Jupiter in the orbit and they're called Lagrange points and they're just where the gravity from the sun and Jupiter balance out and the net force that these things feel is basically, you can say, zero as they move around with Jupiter. So they, they're always the same distance ahead of Jupiter in the or orbit and always the same distance behind uh, Jupiter in the orbit. And they're called the Trojans and the Greeks. And so <laughs> if, you, if you look nice. that up, yeah, if you look that up, then you'll see them labeled. And uh, they're, just, they're just little asteroid belts are just little pieces of asteroids that are out there just a collection there's a little more than normal there um and so jupiter yeah jupiter is known for its gravity and its gravity definitely has an effect on all of the objects in the solar system and the asteroid belt and the uh those trojans and greeks um but uh if you keep going out you have jupiter now okay just quickly too close to the solar system it's really hot so that's why you have rocky planets there, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. They're all, you could walk on them, and they're all pretty small. 
compared to the other ones. You get further out, you have Jupiter, which probably has a Earth-sized core, you know, but then is surrounded by this giant thing of gas. And it's because it's so far out that it's sort of cold enough where the the gas doesn't get evaporated uh, as easily from the temperature. Yeah, because those gas giants can only form where it's cold. Exactly. It has to be like, what do they call it? Out beyond the frost line or... Yeah, something like that. And um, so... So we call them uh, uh, re- volatile materials versus the refractory materials. So the refractory materials are rock and things like that, that that will be stable at a high temperature. But like alcohols on Earth, you put on hand sanitizer, it evaporates quickly. Same thing, you know, when you're, in, you're at this temperature, you know, hydrogen and these other gases, um, they evaporate and they're gases at this point. On Jupiter, they're frozen, they're in liquid form, or they're, you know, in gaseous form, but um, we call them gas giants because on Earth, hydrogen is in a gas form. And then Neptune and Uranus, we call them ice giants because, you know, on Earth, those elements are in ice forms or, you know, just, or gas forms. But um, uh, when you get beyond Uranus and Neptune, you get into what's called uh, the Kuiper Belt, and there's a bunch of objects called TNOs out there, which are trans-Neptunian objects. So they're um, just uh, anything that's tracked out there that's beyond the orbit of Neptune, including Pluto and its five moons. Um, the issue with Pluto was that in the 2000s, we started discovering lots of objects beyond the orbit of Neptune that, you know, a couple of them are bigger than Pluto. And so the question was, are we going to keep adding? Because by finding those, the thought was we're going to keep finding them. And so the question was, are we going to keep adding planets to our solar system and make all our children learn hundreds <laughs> of new you know, names for all these planets? Or should we sort of have a, uh, a different definition of what a planet is and get a little more critical on how this works so that's where th- that's where that comes from is is Ceres are well are we going to call Ceres a planet you know the, it's in the asteroid belt it's a giant thing it's um you know it it looks like a planet it looks like Mercury we call Mercury a planet why don't we call Ceres a planet and then uh you know Jupiter the cool thing is New Horizons was launched when Jupiter was still a planet and by the time it got there, it took 10 years. <laughs> uh, Pluto was no longer a planet anymore. And so it was kind of funny to, you know, the crew that designed the spacecraft went through a whole, you know, period of like, well, yeah, let's go see the ninth planet. And then, you know, well, we're going to see a dwarf planet, one of hundreds in our, you know, like. <laughs> the imagery that came back from that was stunning. so incredible. Some of the best of any planet we have, right? It, so, it's so, like, the actual geography and and everything on on Pluto is just amazing. Yeah. And and because it's so far out that the gases and stuff like that react differently, they almost get like is it like a methane snowfall is what they get there? Yeah, and and you know it's important to note and if you live in Iowa, you know that in the last winter when it was minus 1000 degrees, uh <laughs> ice is as hard as rock at those temperatures, right? So they, you know, the mountains there, even if they're ice mountains, they're basically rocks. Like they are as as hard as you know the rocks. That, and it's harder than limestone. Let's put it that way. There's not much choss over in Pluto. Uh, if you want to do some <laughs> real ice climbing, um, <laughs> gravity would be lower, so it'd be a little bit easier. 
Um, but uh, yeah, no, no, it's it's they're completely. And actually, one of the surprises with um, with Pluto was that the surface is more active than we thought it would be, because our current understanding of planets is their surface activity is sort of driven by their internal heat, and we thought that Pluto would be long dead by now, uh, because even though when you microwave a potato. <laughs> It stays hot for a long time. Like, it's the last thing you can eat if you put it out with a plate of food, right? <laughs> you know, you want to eat your uh, macaroni and cheese right away because it's going to get cold fast. Yeah. But a baked potato, like, every time you try to hot it, eat it, still burns your tongue, right? So, I, I like to think of the planets as baked potatoes because they're still hot <laughs> even after four billion years. And so, the thought was Pluto should be, because Mars is dead, Right, Mars yeah. is, Mars died a few billion years ago, and uh, in terms of its activity, and um, I mean it's still got some, but its atmosphere evaporated and it doesn't have liquid water anymore, and that kind it of doesn't stuff. have much of a magnetic field, which would be yeah. driven by a molten core. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so it's a frozen planet basically, but um, but Pluto, right, uh, is still okay because one of the one of the things we look for is the number of impacts on a surface. Because every object is hit. If you go to Arizona, there's a nice impact crater, the Behringer Crater outside Phoenix, like 30 minutes outside. Definitely recommend going and seeing it. It's one of the most well-preserved impacts on the planet Earth. It's only 50,000 years old or something like that. And, uh, you know, the reason Earth doesn't have a lot of those is because we have a lot of activity. Very dynamic geography. Yeah. Or geology. Yeah, yeah. We've got volcanoes. We've got earthquakes. We've got... Uh, you wind know, and wind rain. Wind and rain. It causes these things to erode Erosion, away. yep. And things are hidden away by renewed... Like, if you look at Yosemite and the dormant volcano that's under there... That's not dormant volcano. It's a super volcano that's going to explode someday. If you look at it, you can see that it's carving out a path through Idaho. Like, it has melted the Rocky Mountains. Like, if you follow the Rocky Mountains from Canada down and you get to Idaho, you'll see there's a giant piece missing where this Yosemite's volcano has, has just melted the surface Yellowstone? of the earth. Yeah, Yellowstone. Did I say Yosemite? Yeah, yeah. I thought you were that talking about Yellowstone. That was embarrassing. It happens. <laughs> they both start with Y, yeah. So, yeah, Yellowstone, <laughs> the reason Yellowstone is fancy is because, um, you know, why does it have geysers? Why does it have... Because of its geologic, that there's a it's a caldera yeah. of a of a supermassive volcano. That if it were to go off, yep, which it has like, in the past, yep, it would be so horrific. I mm -hmm. mean, the amount of ash that it could cover North America in is like over a foot. Oh yeah, I yeah. think in the amount of particulate it would put out into the atmosphere, you're looking at a new ice age. Yeah, yeah it would be dark. It would, it would be dark for a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, global, it, it would be it's very a global challenging event. for life to yes. survive. It's a global event, and it's going to happen. Like, there's no question about it. Yeah. If you go to Ash Falls in Nebraska, um, there's a uh, um, really, really well-preserved fossil dig uh, from not that long ago when the last time it, it you know, and there, there's rhinos and horses and camels and all sorts of weird animals you wouldn't think you'd find in Nebraska. But they're, they all, um, you know, after this happens, life goes on for a little while. But they basically, you could see evidence in their teeth that they've been eating plants covered in ash for a while because their teeth are worn down from the sandpaper yeah. effect. And uh, But they all basically died in the same spot and they got um, well-preserved. 
and they're covered in ash and you know um so kind of like imagery like pompeii yeah and stuff like that. which if you guys are watching this contemporarily sleet with um march 9th 2019 <laughs> then there's a recent nova episode on vesuvius and there's a a new volcano that's not a new volcano but one near vesuvius which destroyed pompeii it's about to go off i guess and so they're really paying attention to it because oh, no. that city has risen like 15 feet in the last 10 years. Like the whole surface of the earth is like lifting. Lifting up because yeah. there's so much magma underground that yeah, it's actually, pressure. it's like a balloon basically inflating under the crust. trying to get out, you know? So, you know. Oh, that's terrifying. It is super terrifying. Well, the, the volcanoes are scary enough on their own just right. because, I mean, you got molten hot rock that's going all over the place. But the scariest part is the pyroclastic flow Yes, the, that comes the, off of it, and it will travel over water, oh. and it'll actually pick up speed going over water, yeah. and it'll still be hot enough. It burns to, you. Yeah, it'll vaporize you, yeah, and, yeah. and like your lungs are filled with ash, and yes. like... It, it burns so hot that it, t- it sucks all the oxygen out of the air. You're going to suffocate. Yeah, that's what killed. you encased in ash like instantly. And yeah, that's what killed the Pompeii folks. Anyone that left was okay, but the ones that stayed behind. And so the pyroclastic flow, what is it, right? It's because all the eruption that went up when the eruption stops, you know, that cloud of ash is thousands of feet in the air. There's nothing to support it anymore. It just falls back down. It collapses because of gravity and then yeah. runs right off the slopes of yeah. the volcano. And it's just an avalanche of doom. Incre- <laughs> yeah, and at an incredibly high rate of speed. Yes, you can't there, outrun there, it. There's no outrunning it. <laughs> it's 300 degrees, you know. Yeah. And yeah, it burns you. It burns the oxygen out of the air. It it covers everything. So it doesn't, it, it destroys it. So like Pompeii, it covered everything in like, you know, meters of ash, even before the flow happened, I think, is what, you know, it, it just like, unbelievable eruption. So, yeah, so so that would be bad. Um, but it's going to, like, I keep thinking about this. This is We're living in a very nice time. A very, very stable time. Yes. It's a it's a good time to be alive. Yes. Nothing bad has happened. <laughs> since In between ice ages. and <laughs> Yeah. Since the last human-caused catastrophe of, you know, World War II or something like that. I mean, maybe Vietnam isn't is a major catastrophe, but it's not global like World War II, I guess. Yeah, Glo- it didn't World- result in millions upon millions of deaths. Yeah, World War II, only 60 years ago or whatever, 70 years ago, was the last major catastrophe humans had to face, really. Um, and that's kind of lucky, but it is annoying because we did it. <laughs> <laughs> you know well so, and that's the saddest part of it too is that basically that shit was caused by you know, the worst sides stuff. of human nature just dumb stuff you know yeah. just dumb and but uh, so anyways one of the things i talk about a lot when i'm in my classes um teaching astronomy and stuff is that we're gonna have to deal with an asteroid impact again someday like it is inevitable 100 percent something is going to hit the earth that is big and cause a problem and you know we're just gonna have to be ready to deal with it uh whenever that may happen and on average it's every you know several tens of thousands of years for um uh uh something like in arizona to hit so it's been tens of thousands of years since that hit you know the odds are something should be on its way you know and and we try to look for it but something like that you can't see yet well, like, no, and depending on what color it is, if it doesn't have much reflection right. off of it from the sun, we're, we're not going to see, see it. it. It's impossible. Or if it's coming in from behind the sun, right, and then it's pretty much in a blind spot, right. 
Yeah. That stuff's it's it's just so. But they're scary. too small to see with radar or anything, so we we really can't predict it. Like, um, you won't know it's here until it glows in the atmosphere. Like, there's no way to predict an incoming asteroid. Oh man! Yeah, right. So, well, and and I like hearing the different plans that they have. Yeah. Like, oh, we could do this and this. It's like, well, really, how long would it take to deploy? Like something that would go up and like I've heard everything from oh they could put some sort of dark substance on it so it's going to interact with sunlight differently and heat will throw it off its orbit or you could take something that would maybe land on it and have some sort of booster on it that would give it just enough of a nudge that instead of impacting the Earth it would just miss us. Yeah, and if if you know it's coming from long enough away, a small deviation is enough because over the long distances that small deviation adds up to missing the earth right great but you need to know you know months in advance if you know at least in order to launch something get it there in time to get that nudge to happen and you could always you know do a nuke and try to use a nuke to blow it off and if it's an iron meteor you probably have a good chance but if it's like a stony meteor what you worry about is fragmenting it and then yeah now instead of getting hit with a rifle bullet we're getting hit with buckshot yeah right and it's not and it's it's like a buckshot of rifle bullets you know it's not you know it's not like you'd survive a buckshot you know yeah you won't survive a rifle buckshot you know this is is where um basically uh, armageddon got it very wrong yeah right yeah no (laughs) It wouldn't be buckshot. It would be. Um, We're gonna split it in half with a nuclear warhead, and then either side's gonna, it's gonna then just kind of go around Earth. I'm like, no. okay, sure. Yeah, no, you turn it into burst fire mode, <laughs> and you fire three rounds instead of one, and that's what happens. So, you know, whatever. But anyway, so back to the Kuiper Belt. So, so beyond Neptune, there's all these objects that we're, we track. Seven hundred and fifty thousand objects right now. 750,000. Yep, tracked objects beyond Neptune. Uh, for sure cataloged and uh, identified. Wow. Yeah. And so... Um, and that's everything from rocky to icy objects? Yeah, yeah. And they're in, all... In all sizes. Yeah, Basically yeah. what can be seen what can from be that, seen. Yeah. that so, distance. So they're still, you know, pretty large. But yeah, so those are all the objects that are out there that we've been able to see and monitor. And, um, you know, we they anticipate thousands of dwarf planets among them that we haven't yet gotten through to um and there's you know several uh that are candidates that we need more observations to figure out um but if you get beyond the kuiper belt you enter a region called the oort cloud named after a guy named oort o-o-r-t and uh there's a trillion comets out there you know at least and so um that's a big number of comets and the oort cloud actually kind of overlaps with the oort cloud of alpha centauri so if you're talking about our solar system and how big it is, uh, our closest star system, Alpha Centauri, um, has its own solar system, Oort cloud, Kuiper belt, its own type of structure like that. And our Oort cloud is basically reaching to the edges of that star's system. That's incredible. I uh-huh. didn't know that they were that big, that close. I mean, I knew Alpha Centauri was the closest right. the star to us, but I had no idea that our Kuiper belts... Or yeah. Oort clouds, more or less, right. like so, interacted with each other. Yeah. So, so if you think about the um, comets that are out there that have orbits, you know, that long, the light to go across our actual solar system, it takes more than a year for the light to travel across the sun's, you know, uh, realm, basically. So, you know, many light years across to get 
to for for you know i like i uh, there's a really good um website i show my students where you can it's to scale if the moon was one pixel how big would all the planets be and how far apart they are and you side scroll to get them and it's mind-numbingly large and you're just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling oh mercury scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling earth and then you scroll and scroll 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 like 10 times that and you get to jupiter and then from Jupiter to Saturn is the same distance as everything you just did. Oh, and wow. so then you're like scrolling and scrolling. So then I scroll back to the sun and I'm like, okay, let's go at light speed. You know, this was taking a little too long. Let's go light speed. I click light speed and then it animates moving. And it's like, because it takes eight minutes for light to reach this earth from the sun. Yeah. Eight minutes. Think about it. Starting now, it is uh, 1259. I'll let you know when the light ray that just left the sun gets to earth <laughs> eight minutes right? and it's traveling at like ballpark hundred and eighty six thousand miles per second yes <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable well, just the distances in space and like the the numbers involved in it are insane yes. and when you talk about how big that distance is from jupiter to saturn yep jupiter has such an incredible magnetic field that its magnetic field actually stretches that far yeah it actually yeah and it's because of the sun blowing on it that the sun's electric uh, field from its solar wind, basically the solar wind distorts Jupiter's magnetosphere and it trails out into Saturn's domain. Yeah, it's an it's just incredible. Jupiter is such an amazing planet in itself, and um, you, you can't really. And this is something that probably most people don't realize, but a thing called the Grand Tack theory mm-hmm. that Jupiter actually formed way further out, and at one point it moved in. Hmm. And it moved in, and it was basically Saturn following along behind it that kind of stopped it where it was at. Otherwise, we might not have planets that we have them right now. Or before that happened, the inner solar system probably looked drastically different. Right. And, you know, it's really interesting because if you look at a lot of the stars in the sky, um, a lot of them are going to be binary star systems. So they're going to be like Tatooine you're going to have two sunsets, right? Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and that's quite normal in the solar system, uh, in solar systems in our galaxy. So um, the Jupiter is made out of similar materials as the sun. And uh, it's about 80 times smaller than it needs to be. But if it was 80 times bigger, it would be a star. Like it would have had enough mass to get that core to fuse and ignite. Yeah, it would have, it, it, fusion would have taken off. Yes, and then it would be a star. And so um, if you think about other star systems and, you know, their Jupiters that they had a little bit bigger, that's where you get your double star systems uh, coming from is uh, um, having enough material shared between two objects. So, you know, the sun is a massive Jupiter, basically, and Jupiter is a baby sun and it didn't quite have enough to to ignite into a... It's like the sun is like a thousand times more massive than Jupiter. Yeah, and so, but you only needed eighty more Jupiters to get a get a small star, right? So, um, you know, that's kind of wild to think about. Like, we could have when you look up at Jupiter and you see that one of the brightest stars in the sky is usually Jupiter. If you look up and you see a really bright star, probably Jupiter or Saturn. Um, and uh, so you could imagine that being an actual star, and it would be, you know, it would it would be like the sun, but it would be a little bit smaller because it would be further away. Like, the sun right now is the same size as the full moon. So if you look up and you see the moon when it's full, that's how big the sun is in our view. 
and uh you relative know, to the distances involved yeah and so we are one and, and that's a really weird quirk yeah that we're lucky they that happen way. to be about the exact same size and that's how that's why we have eclipses so, that's why solar eclipses work out the way they do exactly and uh there's slight deviations because you know the moon orbits at, a, at an angle and in an inclination and has a uh, an elliptical kind of orbit so sometimes it's a little closer sometimes a little further so that's how you get the different types of eclipses you can get a full a total eclipse where the moon covers the sun that's when it's slightly closer so it looks a little bigger than the sun sometimes it's a little bit less than the sun because it's a little bit further away and so it appears a little bit smaller and so you get the ring around the moon and uh, the annular eclipse or whatever and then uh, sometimes you get the partial and depending on where it is in its orbit but and that can all be tracked mathematically. Yeah, we predict all that. Totally. And it's something that the Mayans were able to do. Yeah, yeah, totally. Nuts. This is human ingenuity yeah. is is amazing. And like when you look back at how long we have existed with this brain capacity and everything, right. and then also you take into consider what we were talking about earlier, asteroid impacts, super volcano eruptions. How many times have we gotten to a peak and then been Wiped knocked out. back down? Right. Totally. I mean, because if you look... If you look in the the pantheon of human inventions that we know about right now, the one that is the most often overlooked but is the most important, I think, is the written word. Yeah. How many other written words were there? I mean, they... Before they were lost, yeah. For sure. And there's still... I mean, there's archaeological evidence of stuff that they've found where they're like, we don't know what writing this is. We don't know what thoughts they are conveying here. We can do some, some spotty guesswork. But like when you think of digs like Gobekli Tepe and stuff like that, it's like this is back when, according to mainstream science and history, the accepted theory is back then that was basically before we became an agrarian culture. There was no, they were hunter gatherers back then. It's like, all right, well, how did they have the knowledge to build these things? How did they have the knowledge to build these, you know, megalithic structures and stuff? And it's, Oh, there's just so much to be amazed at around yeah. here. That, Well, and that's like, you know, it's an interesting thing because a, a science like that, a scientific field like that, it's very much a scientific field. But once you get to extrapolation, you're very much doing a guessing game. And so you're so when a scientist talks about, you know, this is the current accepted, you know, theory that is explaining all the current evidence of what you see but it doesn't explain anything else you might find because the predictive power of it's not super great yet, you know, like, um, because until you look at that region of earth or time, or if you don't have all the information, you can't really draw a ma- a big conclusion about, you know, you'll be, you're close. You can get your error bars are kind of large or whatever, but yeah, it's an interesting thing about science because a lot of times we're approximating stuff. And um, you don't, you know, it. one thing we don't teach very well is what an approximation is and how every scientific um, measurement has an uncertainty on it. And we don't really give people, as scientists, because um, it's a difficult concept to get. So I think, you know, we try to avoid it, I guess. I don't know why, but quantifying your uncertainty is the is what science is. Because every me- measurement, the uncertainty of the measurement is actually your measurement. Because, you know, you can, you can imagine anything you want 
and you can get any observation to match whatever you believe, but quantifying the uncertainty on that measurement, that's your true answer because you know the true value lies between there and it could be any of those. And when you have large error bars, your extrapolations are wilder. Like you can end up in wild places from large uncertainties. So the, the better you can nail down your uncertainty, the tighter your implications can be. And so that's what, um, when we talk about precision uh, measurements, that's why we do them. The more precise they are, the less uncertainty there is, the less wiggle room we have in the implications of that measurement, if that makes sense. Yeah, and the closer you are to the truth. Yeah, exactly. And so that's that's like um, if you watch any sort of media and news and, and all this stuff, a lot of it is speculation and extrapolation because a lot of it is based on... Uh, information with large uncertainties, right? Like, well, I have a source who has said this. Well, it's like the game of telephone. Yeah. You're interpreting what they said. They're interpreting what they heard. What happened in between? You know, like, you're probably close, but until you really nail it down, you don't really know what was going on there, you know? And so when we're, like, that's whenever I talk to people about the media, that's, it's like you just have to understand that's raw data coming out. We don't know the uncertainty on those. We don't know the calibration of that. We don't know any of this stuff. It's just raw turds. And, you know, <laughs> you need to treat the sewage before you can drink it. So, you know, just don't take it that seriously, whatever you hear coming from a first, you know, like the first reporting of any story is going to be you know, sewage and you gotta, you know, you gotta, you just gotta be like, okay, let's wait and see what happens. Let's wait for the details and, you know, see what's, what, you know, we can have an initial impression. Well, if it's this, then we should be ready for that. And you sort of set up your, you know, reaction to what it's going to be and then wait for all the details to come in or whatever. But that's the most important lesson, I think, for people to understand that they can learn from the scientific method is quantifying uncertainty and getting a feel for like, well, that is not based on solid ground. Could be true, but there's a lot of wiggle room there. So we got to just, we need more information before we can really have an opinion, you know, a strong opinion. Yeah. One of the things that I've always really enjoyed about the scientific method is Question authority. Yeah. Right. That's always yeah. worked well yes. <laughs> for my line of thinking. Yes. And what it results in is that these really old theories that have been around for a long time start to get honed down like a samurai sword. Exactly. Because so many people have come along that have taken that, well, let's question authority. Yes. Let's come up with an experiment that's going to prove Einstein wrong. Right. Let's come up with an experiment that's, that's going to prove Darwin wrong. And in a result, if, if the initial you know, hypothesis, theory, if it, it's strong enough, these experiments that are seeking to disprove it, they're going to come along and say, oh, wow, it's, this didn't go the way I thought it would. This actually backs it up. Right. And so now that theory has more weight. Right. Because the more people that come along and try and chip it into pieces, you know, and then they fail along the way. But I mean, it. Yep. there are some things that, you know, that, that they got wrong over yeah. time. Because I mean, wasn't, wasn't one of Einstein's you know, kind of flaws is that he really wanted to believe in a static universe. Yeah. He, he didn't want to think that it was continually expanding. And I mean, Hubble was kind of the one who found that out through observing redshifts and right. saying that everything we look at is moving is away, moving from, us. away right. from us. Right. Everything is moving away from everything. Right. And, and Einstein was kicked himself because he's like, I predicted that 
But I changed but, my theory to he, make he, it go away. Because yeah. it didn't jive with his own personal yes. beliefs. And so right. it's, it didn't jive, another way of saying that, it didn't jive with his personal opinions. Yeah, he. I mean, and you need that to, to get into science because you need to have a viewpoint that you're trying to understand and you, you have an opinion that you're trying to prove or trying, like, you have, a, okay, because if you learn physics, if you learn something, you're learning something. Someone has discovered something and you're learning it. Learning physics is just like learning to paint or learning to build a house or learning to whatever. Someone's already figured it out. You're having someone tell you how to do it. It's already done. Uh, what a true physicist like an Einstein or someone is doing is, is seeing a phenomena that has never been explained before and trying to explain it, right? And trying to come up with an equation that explains it. And so, uh, you know, Einstein was very good at that, but you need to, there's no one telling you what it's like. So that, that, his ability to come up with a concept and have an opinion and an attitude, and then, and then everybody has that ability, right? Everybody has an ability to have an opinion and an attitude. <laughs> so what his strength was, was to write it in a way that could be tested with an experiment and then predict something so anyway, he would see an observation and a phenomena, and he would say, the reason this is that way is because of this. And because of this, that should happen. Go forth and do it, right? And so then an experimentalist would have to say, well, Einstein thinks that if we do this, that should happen. And then when it does happen, you go, okay, he predicted that. That's kind of an amazing thing to be able to predict the future, right? And that was what you know, made people famous in the days of, you know, the scientific sort of revolution was being able to predict the wandering stars. And that's what the planets were. It's like, how do you predict where they're going to be at any given night on any given day at any given time? And that was the biggest, you know, sort of like, whoa, we can actually predict the yeah. heavens, you Did, know? Didn't Newton have, have essentially develop calculus as a way to predict the movement, the motion of planetary bodies like yeah, that? Yeah, so like... Um, uh, uh, he was like 21. Kept, yeah. yeah so <laughs> day 3000 without sex, invents calculus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've never heard it put that way before, and it's so funny. Yeah, well, he's famously not interested, right? So, um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, for whatever reason, so um, you know, he grew up on a farm and he hated farming, so he decided to take up math. You know, it's weird. He's a weird guy. He's the opposite of human. Yeah, a normal human. You know. Yeah. Uh, which One of is those fine. Alex Honnold types. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, he just wanted to sit with his books and figure out his stuff, and he was very driven, and that you know, and he just did his work every day. But, um, yeah, so Kepler, Johannes Kepler, he was the one who predicted, he, was, he wrote down a bunch of relations and, and measurements and was able to predict based on those measurements, it took him 40 years, to, to figure out where all the planets are going to be and, and predict all that. Uh, Newton wrote down one equation that said, if you show me where it is now, I'll show you at any time in the future where it will be. So you don't need all this data to reference all the time. You just have the one equation, you find where it is, Boom! You can predict its motion based on the law of uh, gravity. But he needed and, the work of Kepler to be able to come up with that. Well, he needed, yeah, he needed to. His his equation gave the data tables that Kepler had, right? So he he was able to say, look, I can I can tell you any number in Kepler's 
table with my one equation. You tell me the date and the time, and I can tell you where it's going to be. Boom, look at matches, Kepler's data, and that kind of thing. But yeah, his, his idea was, um, the reason he invented calculus was because, or as some people say, discovered calculus, right? <laughs> um, was he needed to he needed to prove his idea about gravity. And he basically treated the moon and the earth. Um, he, the, you know, the famous story is that an apple fell on his head, and he's like, whoa, the same thing that caused the apple to fall on my head is the same thing keeping the moon in orbit. So if I can study how the apple works and how gravity works in the motion of objects on earth, I can do the same with the moon. He used the same phenomena. And so, but he's, he needed to treat the moon and the earth as if all of their mass and all of their gravity was centered at the center of the planet. And he had no way to prove that. He just knew it had to be that way for it to work. And so he's like, for my equation to work, I can say, you know, the center of the moon, just imagine the moon as being at one point, the earth at one point at their centers, and they behave that way. If you can invent calculus and you basically can show that the net effect of you know, this part of the Earth, which is closer to the, to the moon, and this part of the Earth, which is further away from the moon, they sort of average out, so their average force is at the center of the Earth and that kind of thing. Calculus allows you to do that, and it's just, he, he, he was just like, okay, let me imagine breaking the Earth up into tiny little pieces and adding up the contributions of all those little pieces together, and then you can get, you know, the force on the moon. And that's, calculus is all about just dividing everything up into little pieces and then adding them together uh, to find what their net effect is going to be. Yeah, I, and I never got even close to that in math in school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, math was my weakest point. <laughs> yeah, because nobody's good at teaching math. Yeah, maybe that was it. Yeah, yeah but yeah. I don't know. I like I've I've gotten better at it, but mm-hmm. I mean, like, if you were to put a gun to my head and say you're dead if you don't if you can't do long division on paper, I'd be like, well, here we go. Yeah, it's been a good run. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's try it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that mag divided by one bullet equals yeah, right. dead Joe. Yeah, right. <laughs> Welp. Uh, so, yeah. So, anyway. Um, now, and then, so ba- basically everything in science is, it's almost like people standing on the shoulders of other people. Yeah, that's what Newton's famous is. If I have seen further than anyone, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants, right? Yeah, and and that's so true. And that's Mm -hmm. because everything, this collected knowledge all builds upon itself. Um, Like one of the ones that I thought was really impressive, I think it was the story of... Yeah, aliens. (laughs) They've taught us. Well, speaking of that, what what was your take on that news story about the the weird-shaped asteroid that came really close? And they were like, oh, this is... You know, this could be uh, uh, like an interplanetary vehicle of sorts, because why wouldn't you make it out of rock and everything? But what's well, your take on that? So so this is the um, interstellar asteroid, or uh, I guess it was an asteroid. It was a, uh, an object that had a trajectory whose velocity was too fast for it to be orbiting the sun. So in other words, when we measured it, we found it, and we saw it moving, it was going too fast to stay in orbit around the sun, which means it must have come from a different star system. Maybe and, something that flew in from Alpha Centauri. Yeah, exactly. Who knows where it's from? Um, you know, the, the universe is massive, and our galaxy is massive enough that 
Voyager, which is one of the spacecraft we have sent out, and it's in the interstellar space now, it will probably never hit anything. Like, our our galaxy is so vast and the space between the stars so much that Voyager will probably pass through. Even if you sent it right through the disk of the galaxy, it would never hit anything because um, it's so small compared to all this stuff. So we don't know where this thing came from, right? And, but it definitely isn't from the solar system because it's moving too fast to stay in orbit or to have been in orbit around the sun. Um, and it was shaped like a, you know, a spaceship or something, which is kind of weird because it doesn't really need to be aerodynamic in space. Yeah. So I don't know if you need to make a missile shaped <laughs> thing, you yeah. know? Yeah. There's no wind resistance yeah, in space. Right. You don't need that sleek. I mean, you could get some interaction with solar winds and stuff, but I don't think it's anything that like an aerodynamic shape is going to help you with really i maybe i don't know maybe long distances (laughs) over long scales maybe you do need to worry about that uh but i i don't know i think well that's where like the solar sail technology is really interesting yeah you could deploy some big giant fabric that would basically ride on solar winds right and pull you along but maybe calling it solar winds is is even a misnomer of a sort well because it's basically just particles that are being flung away from the sun it is particles but they would transfer momentum to you so they would and that's how that sail works is it pushes you you know so if you're going towards the star you might face a headwind of sorts and you might use a magnetic field to deflect it or something rather than a shape you know a sleek shape but you know i don't know maybe maybe i'm not thinking through interstellar travel (laughs) very clearly and it's obvious that you need a missile shaped um, ship but um yeah so anyway so yeah my take on it is it's probably just a rock (laughs) (laughs) it's such a dream yeah i know right (laughs) That was like the first episode of this that, that we did together. And you're like, yeah, yeah there's, there's probably aliens, but they're not here. Oh, yeah. No, Aww. like, okay. <laughs> Think about this, though. Think about this. The, the planets, we didn't know they were planets. They were stars that moved around. Nobody knew what they were. They uh-huh. were moving around among the stars. The wandering we call stars. Them. Yeah, the wanderers, yep. And, and nobody knew what they were. They do look like stars. Yeah. And, you know, the telescope was invented, and it was invented to look at, you know, p- for pirates and, and land, <laughs> land ho, you know, and to, to when you're on a ship in the middle of the ocean, you got to see land from far away. <laughs> and that's why the telescope was invented. And Galileo is one of the first folks to, like, say, I'm going to point it at the stars, right? And if you, probably he wasn't the only one that did it, but if you point it at most stars, they just look like stars up close, you know, and they're, I mean, they don't even look close. There's just more stars. They don't really get bigger, you know? So, um, probably a lot of people were like, star is cool. And then that was it. (laughs) But, and if, and if, even if you look at Jupiter, okay, if you look at Jupiter, you'll see four little stars next to it. And those are the largest moons. Yeah. We call them the Galilean moons because he recorded them and he looked at them every night. And what he saw was that they were orbiting Jupiter and if you were a naive person that was just kind of, I mean, you just weren't interested and you looked at it, you might just think, okay, it's more stars around this star. And they're just there because they don't, you don't, they're not moving while you're looking at it. So it's easy to think that they're static stars just like everything else. Well, he just looked at them and, and of course, Jupiter looks like this and the, the other stars are pretty small compared to it. So Jupiter already, it's like, well, maybe it's a close star. Maybe it's a really close star like the sun or something, you know. And, uh, but he realized that those were moons and they were orbiting jupiter and he would draw pictures of them and that's when he realized jupiter was probably another planet 
right? And you can imagine being a human at that time and realizing, holy cow, that is... And then with Venus, discovering the phases of Venus, like, like the phases of the moon, and you can see the crescent shape and being like, that's a planet. And trying... Try like then, like now. There's no chance that there's like life in the solar system that we know about, right? At least no, no, you know, people walking around drawing stuff on rocks. It could be microbes yeah, or something. But maybe microbes under a frozen, yeah, you know, crust, you know, around a. Because I mean, there, there's moons around what Saturn yeah. and Jupiter that Liquid that are water. basically frozen on the outside. But they, because of uh, tidal forces from the gravity of the planet, yep. basically it's like rubbing your hands together really yep. fast. And so there is some heat that's coming in, Tons of basically heat. just from the, the, the gravity distorting the, yep. the, the rock that it's like, okay, there's a really good chance there's liquid water in here yep, for because sure. we're seeing water volcanoes that are spewing you know, geysers. basically geysers of liquid water into space. And yep. where there's water on Earth, there's life. Yep. Yep. No. So... Um, NASA's planning a submersible mission to Europa. No way! Yes, to to put a submarine down there under the ice and and uh, take. Oh, a look, that's amazing! I hadn't heard around. of that. Mm-hmm. That seems like the stuff of science fiction. Well, to we me. need that. We need that so bad right now. So oh. yeah, I can't wait. We, for we that just need now. a proper space program. It's yeah, sad. Right. we don't even have a we don't even have a rocket program Not right really. now. It's sad. Well, the in SpaceX just did the Dragon, so they just put a dummy into orbit and docked with the space station and brought them safely back. So That that is the plan moving forward is it's going to be kind of space instead of uh NASA basically being publicly commercial. funded, it's it's going to be relying on It'll still be publicly funded, but we'll just funnel money into Elon Musk's bank account. <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm kind of okay with that. Yeah, I'm fine. We need I I want to go to space. I want to go around the moon. So yeah, yeah. The, well, just the more we know about it, the better. Yeah, and, no, I definitely want to do a space tourism. I want a, a thriving space tourism industry. So, yeah, I'm I'm all aboard getting something like that up so it's affordable for some people to <laughs> take a ride around the moon and and see the backside of the moon and all the stars that sparkle out there. Oh, that would be incredible. Mm-hmm. But um, so anyway, what was I saying? Europa. Yeah. Um, beyond that, oh, life. But you can imagine Galileo realizing, what if there's like whole civilizations on each of these? That must have been the most mind-blowing realization. Like, that's a planet. It has its own moons. We have a moon, you know? Mm. What if there's whole cities over there? What if there's whole other peoples on there? And then there's Venus and then Mercury and then all these other planets, you know? Like, you could imagine at that time the amount of wonder that they must have had about Oh my gosh, and for hundreds of years we couldn't figure out if there was actually people out there, but now NASA has sent a robot to visit every one of these planets, you know, and we've landed craft on most of them and and uh, you know, no cities so far, but <laughs> but still, you know, why why wouldn't there be? So, yeah, they just, have found some pretty incredible stuff though, like oh, stuff yeah. that they did not expect to see. That's just amazing, like the, the methane lakes of uh, Titan. That's exactly what I was just going to bring up. Yeah, you could just put your diesel generator into the lake and power your house. Right? <laughs> <laughs> not, if you're okay with like the negative thousand degree yeah, temperatures right, right, right. relative around you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's like forty degrees Kelvin on the surface or something like that, which That's is just crazy. Basically zero. You know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah. 
way know. colder than our polar vortex temps. Yeah, right? <laughs> Close, but... And those were unbearable. <laughs> yeah, right. Hold on a second. Let me see. Um, uh, minus 20 Celsius in Kelvin. No. Minus 20 <laughs> Celsius in Kelvin. 250 Kelvin. So, you know... <laughs> We were we were experiencing 250 Kelvin temperatures during the coldest, <laughs> and it's negative Kelvin on Titan. Well, it's 30. It's you know, 30 because zero is okay. the zero is the coldest an atom can be before it stops moving. Oh, and okay. And that's what temperature is: is the motion of atoms. So, absolute zero is zero Kelvin. Nothing can be colder than it. And so. Are there regions of space that are absolute zero then? Uh, well, what we say is is empty space is like 2.3 or 2.7 degrees Kelvin, something like that. And that's because of the microwave radiation from the Big Bang that's still traveling through space. Space is pretty cold, yeah, but it's not absolute zero, yeah. Um, now, space, everything we see, is a, it's all a fabric that's interlinked together. Yep. And that was part of the theory... That's of, the space-time theory. Of, uh, yeah. yeah, relativity, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the ways that they were trying to prove and or disprove that, I believe it was around was it around World War II. They were basically waiting for an eclipse because oh, they yeah. wanted yep. World War One. They wanted to see a star that was on the other side of the sun that the sun should be blocking. Yep. But if space truly was curved, then that light was going to go and it was going to hit that curvature and it was going to warp around the sun yep. and we were still going to be able to see it. Yeah. So, so that was one of the first big tests of Einstein's theory. And it was a big deal. There's a great documentary on it's either Iowa public television or just public television, or if it's on Netflix, I can't remember, but it's, it's a uh, it's about this. Uh, I think it's called Einstein and Eddington, or Eddington and Einstein, or Eddington, or something. But it's about Sir Arthur Eddington and his efforts to test Einstein's theory because Einstein was a German, and this was World War One, and because he was trying to disprove him. Well, and Eddington was a Brit, and the the Brits were like, we don't want the German to be right. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't want to do anything with his theory because we don't want to give the Germans any, any extra, you know, uh, political victories that would help extend the war. You know, I'm not a historian on this, so I could be making that up. But that's the that's what I got from that um, was that they were skeptical of using British resources to test a German idea um, because they would have to. They wanted a bunch of money to go down to the Horn of Africa or something to be, because that's where the eclipse was going to be. And, um, and they got really lucky because it was actually a really stormy day and they had to wait for the clouds to clear to actually get a picture of it. But yeah, the idea is that, um, what gravity is, is an illusion. It's, um, space and time are, are a connected series of points and, um, you know, your future trajectory through time depends on your motion through space and matter and energy warps space-time coordinates so that it distorts where your future trajectory takes you through space. And gravity, according to Einstein, is um, the reason we're drawn towards Earth is because Earth forces our future trajectories to, to cross its surface. So in other words, us just sitting here, space-time is flowing towards the Earth. Our futures are bringing us into the Earth's hands 
right? And that's that's what gravity is. It's not a force per se, according to Einstein, according to the standard model. It, it's a force governed by the graviton. Um, but according to Einstein, it's a curvature of the space-time system. And so if you have a mass like the sun, it warps that the space-time grid. And so it, it creates a lensing effect, just like a lens curves light or photons, um, space caused uh, curvature from a, a massive object causes photons to take a bended trajectory. And so it's basically like um, using a mirror to see behind someone uh, or a lens to see around something. Um, and that was their test was to take a picture of a region of the sky um, and uh, block out basically the sun so that you could take a picture of the stars behind or around the sun that you normally can't see during the day. But with these special filters, you could see them and then compare them to a chart of the stars at night. And then you could see that some of the stars were displaced from their normal positions by the fact of the sun being close to them. So it just blurs the space-time around the sun and distorts the light coming around them, and that's called uh, gravitational lensing. Um, and we use that to see around galaxies and see behind gal galactic clusters, and we use them to see deep into space because it brings light from far away and kind of lenses it forward so we can see stuff we can't normally see because it's pulled forward by the lens and focused um, by a, a region of matter. We also test dark theory, uh, dark matter theories with that. I was going to bring up dark matter with that. Is yep, that they yep. can't directly observe dark matter, yep. which is why it's called dark matter. Exactly. Dark just being a euphemism for we don't know matter. We don't know what it is, but we see its effect is, is yep. basically the long and, and short of it. And the way, the way that it was described to me in the documentary that I watched, it almost be akin to like taking like an empty glass and like setting it on a newspaper and it's going to distort the way you're seeing through it in a lensing type effect. Yep. And when they see this in space, they're like, well, what, what's the glass? What object is actually causing this to happen? It's something right. that we don't see, right? but gravity interacts with it and photons react with it because it's basically whatever this dark matter is, is it's causing, causing a curvature in space that we're able to notice because of the way that the photons are traveling across it. Right. So what we understand gravity to be is according to Einstein, is a um, is a warping caused by energy and matter, so we call it dark matter because whatever it is, it's warping space um, because it's causing that extra lensing effect. And so, matter is something that we know causes a yeah energy oh. and matter. So so what is dark matter? It's we keep thinking it's could be a particle, and it's just an unknown particle yet that's massive enough to. Uh, um, you know, create this effect that we see in the rotations of stars around galaxies and how, you know, the strength of the interactions and all that stuff. There's a lot and a lot and a lot and a lot and a lot of evidence supporting dark matter as a thing. Um, we still don't know what it is, but it's definitely, whatever it is, is real. Um, what cause, is it a particle? Is it a weird effect we don't understand yet? Is it something, some, you know, whatever it is, it's real. And it, our theories don't explain it the way it is. We have to add in extra matter to get our theories to work. So either the theories need to be adjusted to not need that matter, or there's a bunch of extra matter there that we're not adding into the theory. And, you know, it's kind of easy because to, to have an uncertainty on it because all we're trying to do when we look at a galaxy is count the number of stars in it, estimate the amount of gas, estimate this and that and that. Those aren't super, you know, well 
established ways, you know, they don't have small uncertainties on those, you know, uh, values. Um, but we're getting more and more and more and more precise, and there's more and more and more other ways to indirectly see effects of dark matter um, that we're, it's more and more confident that it's a real thing, and it's, so, it's it's not like, you know, between, or before like 1950, every scientific idea was more idea and less science. Nowadays, every scientific idea is really founded on a bunch of scientific things. So dark matter is not as much of a dark matter thing as a dark matter thing would have been in the 1800s. You know, so it's it's not as, um, you know, uh, we don't know what it is, but it's not as unknown as some of the things before we found out what they were. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So I think we're on the track of figuring out what it is, but, you know, until we look for... I mean, here's the problem, because um, even a black hole, there's plenty of people who can explain what it is, but until we measure it, it's just an idea, and it's just yeah. someone's fever dream. So, um, so there's a lot of ways to explain what dark matter is that makes our theories work, and makes everything fine, and you can say, oh yeah, it's this, blah, done. But until you test it, you just made your theory work. In, you know? And on that same vein, one of the most interesting things I've heard recently is that a supermassive black hole could be something along the lines of something, an object called a gravistar Mm -hmm. instead Mm -hmm. where it's like, okay, a black hole would basically be culminating in a singularity, which would be an infinite amount of gravity causing an infinitely small point that is so heavy and so small. It curves space so greatly that once you go beyond this point of no return, this event event horizon around it, Space is so deeply curved that not even photons can escape from it. Right, and that's and that's because time and space, your future trajectory and your space trajectories all point to the singularity, and that's why they call it the event horizon. Because beyond the event horizon, all events happen at the singularity. There's no future possible where you're not at the singularity, and so the the curvature causes you to be drawn to the singularity, no matter what you do. It, when you're close to the Earth, you can move up and down and left and right and still into the future and take you somewhere off the Earth because the curvature is not strong enough to prevent you your future from being on the moon or somewhere else. You just need a lot of energy to get you off that trajectory. At a black hole, no amount of energy will get you off that trajectory because there's no time grid. There's no time coordinate that leaves the black hole. All time coordinates are so warped, they all bring you in towards the singularity. And is that a result that uh, equations that try and explain a black hole end in an infinity loop? Exactly. I mean, that's the whole thing is that you end up with one divided by zero or whatever, and it's just undefined. So we call yeah. it singularity. No, most... You know, astrophysicists or physicists, when you talk to them about what's a, what is a black hole, nobody's going to say that it's an infinitely dense point that's infinitely massive and blah, 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 blah. You know, like that's what it is in the equation. Uh-huh. It's obviously can't be that. You know, that's obviously because our equations are broken there. We don't know what to put there. We don't there. have physics advanced enough to really explain what's going on at yeah, that Yeah, I mean, we, we have a lot of ideas, but until you go there and do the experiment... That's like the movie Interstellar. They kept talking, I need the data, I need the data, I need to go to the black hole, get the data, because without data, it's just an idea. Yeah. So, like, I think I, this is how I teach um, theories to 
students like the concept of the theory. And I got this from my high school physics professor or teacher, uh, Mr. Like, Chris Like, if you're out there. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he talked about wax thieves, invisible wax thieves. So if you light a candle, the candle goes away after a while. It melts down and disappears. Where did the candle go? You know, and uh, and he, he he talked about how do you explain that? And one way is you could come up with the theory of the invisible wax thieves. And so there's little critters. As soon as you light the candle, it attracts them. They come and they start taking wax away, and then they they go run off with their wax, and then that's where that's where the wax goes. You burn out the candle, they don't see the candle anymore. The lights out, so they they don't come anymore. So that's why the wax doesn't keep going down when the candle's off. You need the light on for them to do the work, right? And uh, so that could be a fine theory. So there's some explanations of black holes that are that. You're at that point where you're saying, it could be this. But until you say, okay, well, if there's wax thieves, what happens if you put the candle in a jar, right? So you put it in a jar, of course, it's going to burn for a while, and then it's going to burn out. And then, you know, then it stops going down, but it used all the oxygen in the air and the candle, you know, burns out. Whatever. Okay, well, let's try a fence. And then you, you put like a screen around it and then you make it so small that whatever size, they must be smaller than, the, right? So you could keep doing experiments. Or what if you put it high up? What if you hang it from the ceiling? You know, shouldn't there be a time delay before when they actually get onto the candle and start taking the wax? What if you seal everything, right? So, you know. What if you blow oxygen into this jar? But you know what I said? There's ways that you can test whether or not there's actually wax thieves. Um, we know now that it's just burning into water or whatever, turning the wax into um, just water molecules in the air or whatever. But, um, but that, if it, you know, that's an example of, of how you can come up with a lot of explanations for a phenomena that as long as you don't have to make a prediction with it, <laughs> it's fine. As you long know? as there's not going to be another smart fella or gal yeah. to come along and be like, no, you wait know, a I'm, second. I'm going to test this. Yeah. yeah. If that's the case, where are they pooping? There should be, there should be wax. There should be little wax footprints. They should be taking little waxy dumps all over this place. You know, come on. So waxy dumps. Right? If they're eating this much wax, you know, <laughs> things are going to be slippery. So, you know, and, and anyway. That, and that's why the Gravistar idea is interesting to me is because that's something that, that more fits into where it's it's not an infinitely massive and infinitely dense spot. It's just a really big, really dense object right. that happens to have strong enough gravity that light doesn't escape it. Yeah, and, it, and it's definitely possible to, I mean, that's what... A black hole, the way I think about it, and even though I'm probably not the best authority on it, but I think of it just as a star you can't see. It obviously has a size. It obviously, there's something going on there, you know, so... Um, and it must be r small relatively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's I mean, definitely massive, but, but small. Yeah, so all of that mass is definitely compact. How small is it? Like, we know neutron stars are like the size of New York City or Connecticut or something like that. So they're quite small. Um, but the so, space in between the atoms and the matter that it's made of is they're very incredibly close to dense. Exactly. So a black hole is obviously going to be smaller. It's obviously going to be more dense than that, right? But is it going to be an infinitely small? I mean, that is hard for me to, you know, and it's weird because one of the lessons I learned from Einstein is that you should just listen to nature when she's speaking or he, 
if you want, but you know, like don't, don't put your own, don't overly obsess about your own attitudes. Or So when I look at a black hole and when I, I, it's easy for me to say, well, it's obviously not infinitely small point, but you could easily say, well, it is. And both of them could be nature speaking to you. <laughs> you know, like both of them could be just as equal. You could interpret equal each of them as, as the black hole telling you something like, Someone because well obviously it was infinitely in an infinitely small point and another person says obviously it isn't you know yeah. and that's where we need smart creative people to devise experiments that's where you need the experiment. to try and chip away at the mystery mm-hmm. exactly you, and you and like okay know. so so this experiment supports that well let's come up with another experiment that'll try and disprove that and it's like mm, that didn't work it actually ended up proving it right and to me that's where the scientific method is so strong and that's, that's right. why for me. I'm always okay with citing on scientists, especially oh, yeah. when, the, when the the larger the consensus, the more willing I am to believe it. Because science, I'm sure, like any other human endeavor, has a certain amount of cutthroat to it. If it, you you can gain just as much notoriety, I'm sure, by disproving something as you did to be the one to to come up with the initial idea that proves it. Yeah, this is the thing that a lot of people who don't have experience in the scientific field don't understand is. There are people who spend their lives just trying to do that to prove people wrong. Like there are several people that I know of that they don't they don't come up with their own ideas. They read other people's ideas and then publish papers saying why they're wrong. <laughs> like that's what they do, and it's annoying. But <laughs> but they're necessary. They right? are absolutely necessary. So if you're the person trying to come up with an authentic new idea or whatever and you put it out there, you know, there's people that are going to criticize it. And that's, you know, you get to a point where it doesn't bother you anymore because you know that, you know, you, you get to a point where you're secure enough that you're put, you understand the limits of yourself and it's not an ego thing anymore. You understand how putting an idea out there until you really mess with it, you know, there's no chance of it actually being an idea worth anything. So you throw it out there and then... You know, you you let the data come back and tell you what's going on. And the the easier you are at absorbing the new information, the more successful a scientist you can be. Um, and uh, and and that's you're supposed to get good at that yourself. So it's like it's like recording yourself playing an instrument, and playing it back, and hearing it, and going, "Whoa, I need to work on that." <laughs> that's what you know. Going to grad school is all about is getting you to a point where you do a lot of the self-filtering before it gets criticized so that, you know, the criticisms are not a waste of anyone's time. They're really, like, helping further. Like, you have a valid idea, needs to be honed a little bit. That You, you want to get to that point. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to see scientists work because, um, you know, you, you don't get funded for rediscovering the electron, like, that's not a funding proposal you'll write and the DOE will go, sure. You know, like, <laughs> no, this isn't, this is not a field of people patting themselves Let on me the pull back. pull out the checkbook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so it's really important to um, have a, you have to write a valid proposal that's trying to do something new that is relevant to today. Like one of the things you learn about the DOE funding organizations, they have huge committees that are determining what the current state of the art is and what the current problems we need to solve and what the current ones are within solving, you know? And so if you have some harebrained idea that, 
you know, maybe we could do in a hundred years or whatever, it's not going to get funded because the odds of you being able to accomplish it are low, right? Because you're going to need a network to get there. Yeah. And so, so the DOE funds cutting edge uh, research of problems that we have right now that we need to advance to the next step. And uh, so, that, I mean, that's a really interesting, um, you know. So there's a lot of people, well, we have, we just build a satellite that, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, we don't have the technology to do that. I would love that. You know, every scientist would be like, yeah, let's drop everything and do that, you know. Um, if we could put a space station, blah, blah, blah. At the, have you heard of the L5 Society? No. So I talked about the Lagrange points for the Trojans and Greeks around uh, Jupiter. There is also Lagrange points for Earth, and the L5 Lagrange point is trailing Earth in its orbit, so it's considered protected uh, because Earth is going to clear out any debris before we get to it. Oh, okay. And there's a group of people that want to build a space colony at the Lagrange point and call it L5 Society. And so you should become a member. <laughs> yeah. And then and help fund a space station at the L5 at the uh, L5 point. So um <laughs> I think it'd be wild. So <laughs> So anyway, um but yeah, so science is cool, science is cutthroat. Um no no idea is worshipped in science. Um Einstein is respected. And it pisses everyone off that we can't disprove them yet. Um, because in, in science, you can never prove anything beyond a, you know, certainty, doubt, you know, a reasonable doubt. Yeah, plenty of it. But can you certainly prove anything? No, because until you conduct an experiment, you don't know what you're going to find, right? So every experimental test of relativity is trying to do something that hasn't been tested yet to look at it from a different angle to see if there's a hole. And the problem with Einstein is that so far, every one of his predictions has come true. So we're trying to look for that prediction that doesn't come true. And the same thing with the standard model, which explains all the nuclear forces and everything. The LHC was hoping to find the Higgs boson, which it did, uh, exactly where the standard model predicted it, which made a lot of people mad. <laughs> because the standard model it would have been more of a shakeup had it been disproven. It could have given us a hint about what dark matter is, right? Because it could have given us an idea about what another, the you know, if su supersymmetry is a good theory, or you know, any Technicolor or some of these other theories are valid because they predict a Higgs boson not where the standard model Higgs boson is. So the fact that we found the Higgs boson exactly where it was supposed to be according to the standard model, which has been where every particle since 1964, every particle that the standard model predicted was found exactly where it was supposed to be found. And so <laughs> sounds like a pretty good model to start with. It's a, it's the most precise model in of humankind, and uh, it's exceptionally good. The problem is that makes all the scientists mad is because it's it's it has we haven't found a hole yet and we know it has holes. <laughs> like it doesn't say anything about gravity, doesn't say anything about black holes, it doesn't say anything about any of this stuff. Um, so you know, it's we know that Einstein's theory is limited because it doesn't talk about a black hole. We know that the standard model is limited because it doesn't explain dark matter or dark energy. So um, 
you just haven't found the hints yet to yeah. put you in which direction exactly to expand and, research and or come up with new ideas yet. Right. And right now there's candle thieves everywhere. You know, <laughs> wax thieves all over the place. Yeah. No, there's tons of people going down all these alleys trying to figure out what is the explanation. And until we have, you know, the wax thief in a trap, you don't know that it really exists. So that's that's what the current state of the art is, is trying to find any hint of any hole in any theory we currently have. And that's all of science is, is, is you know. So Darwin, very successful. Einstein, very successful. We use those theories daily. And so, you know, that that's why we hold them up as, as pillars because so far we haven't been able to knock them down. And it's not for not trying, you know. So, um, you know. Anyway, that's the that's my spiel. <laughs> well, that sounds like as good a place as any to wrap it up. We're pretty much closing in on the three hour mark. Sounds good. And as, as always, it's always fantastic to talk with you. Likewise. And and as usual, I'm going to say we need to do this more often. And yeah. I'd say our future points need to be doing this more often. <laughs> Yeah, we well, if we just increase Earth's gravity a bit, it'll bring our time horizons closer together. <laughs> no, definitely shorter than a year. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's unbelievable to me. I mean, my my when I was a kid, it was days between stuff, and that seemed like a long time. Uh-huh. Now it seems like, oh, yeah, we just did that last year. And it's like my years are turning into my youth's days. Like, this is not good. <laughs> Yeah, the busier you are, the more irons you got in the fire. Like, holy shit, time goes fast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Days are long, years are short, whatever they say. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you again for yeah. being on. Thanks for coming down. And thank you all very much for listening. Until next time, this has been StartCast. If you have any questions or comments on what you just heard, you can email me at startcastpod at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at the Tubby Ninja, or you can check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash startcastpod. Thank you very much for listening.